and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I'm your host on our journey through the movies that just need a little more love. And our movie tonight is a special one. This is my Halloween episode. This is the culmination of Horror Month on Staff Picks, where I did seven horror episodes in 30 days, which is not easy to do, by the way. That was a lot of work. But we are culminating and capping off with what I would consider the single greatest horror movie of all time, my personal favorite, the granddaddy of all slasher movies, the original 1978 Halloween by John Carpenter. And I can already hear you you're, you're perking up saying, that movie doesn't deserve more love. That movie is the most beloved Halloween movie ever. But we're going to get you to appreciate this movie even more. That is my goal. I'm going to sell you why it's not only the greatest Halloween movie ever, but we're going to dispel some myths that have always been out there about this movie that drive me freaking insane that I'm just dying to finally, you know, crap all over these stupid myths and uh, uh, dispel them for you. So, I will bring on my host here. You have heard him on before. He is my go-to guy for horror movies in general. And I will say, he is the very first three-time guest host on Staff Picks. That's how highly I think of my guest here. He is a horror author. He is a psychopath. And he is a very funny guy who always brings out the darkest side of my Staff Picks humor. Welcome back to the show, Matt Carter. Oh, thank you for having me, Mario. And can I just say, I love that music. You got a great start on that because I think this season, I think the Halloween theme, and it just gets me so going here. So I'm really excited to get going on this with you. All right. Now, again, you're the first first three-time co-host. We've had you on before for The Invitation, which is kind of a toned-down horror movie. And then I brought you back for Drag Me to Hell, which is the opposite of a toned-down horror movie. And now we're going Halloween. And Before I let you launch into this, I will say to people, (laughs) Matt and I have a very long history with this movie, and he has a very special relationship to this one in general, and I will turn it over to you, Matt. Why don't you give people your history of why this movie is important to you and special to you? Uh, the The short answer is I actually grew up in the town where Halloween was filmed, at least the first third of the film, until we get to, you know, murder spree at the end. Um, South Pasadena, California is used for basically every movie, um, but it was the majority of the Haddonfield set. And I got to say, I every day of my life growing up as a teenager, I would pass by locations where Halloween was filmed. I went to the high school they used for Haddonfield High School. I saw a guy, well, okay, I'll save that story for when we get to Haddonfield High School. And one of my favorite memories of high school take place right in the scene that actually takes place at Haddonfield High. Okay, let's uh, delve into this even further. Like, I know Matt grew up there, and, like, the first time I met Matt and he said I grew up in South Pasadena, I'm like, take me to the filming locations. So he he took me around all the filming locations. We've been to those to the point that I now drive around South, South Pasadena and I take people to the horror locations. But it goes a little further than that. Let's talk about your dad here, Matt. Yeah, right. Uh, Dad was definitely into uh, tourism in South Pasadena. He was the big Hollywood historian guy. He actually was in the area when they were filming Halloween. He took great pride in the fact that he's caught Donald Pleasance one day and that they exchanged little waves from a distance. (laughs) 
Yeah, Matt's dad, his name was Scott Carter, and he put out a a tape of landmarks. It's like a little audio tape you could put in your car and drive around South Pasadena, and it takes you to all the movie locations. And unfortunately, Matt, Matt's dad passed away a couple years ago, but he was the guy. He was the guru of all movie trivia and movie locations in South Pasadena, and Matt is his child. So this is why Matt is my Halloween guy. Yeah, I'm just a little bit on the darker side than my dad, so we get to have a little more fun with this. And he was a pretty dark guy, so we're off to a you know good start on that, I think. Okay, well, I almost don't know where to start on this episode because there's so much to say about Halloween. Uh, why don't we start off with your history? Because I have a lot to say. I'd rather start with you. How did you get introduced to this movie uh, when you saw it the first time? Where was it? How old were you? What were your thoughts? Just give us the backstory here. Okay, uh, officially speaking, this is one of my first modern horror movies. Uh, the long and the short is that for most of my childhood and teenagerhood, I was a little afraid of exploring into the realms of horror, even though I was always a little curious about it. And Halloween, again, I had found out in great detail that it was filmed a lot in South Pasadena, and I was really curious about checking it out. And I was amazed that this movie wasn't it wasn't the reputation I was expecting of a horror movie. I was expecting, you know, blood and guts and screams and boobs. And what we have instead was a very understated, classy little movie. So, I mean, when I was, you know, 16-year-old me caught this for the first time, it's like, wow, this is something different. This is something special. I mean, and I got to show my dad, and my dad was all against at least he would claim he was all against horror. He actually had a lot of secret favorites, but he was so against the genre, especially the newer 70s and 80s stuff. And I showed him Halloween and he was like, wow, okay, you were right. I was wrong. That one was pretty good. That was the first time in history that a child was correct and a parent was wrong. So you well done. You're a trailblazer. Oh, I've, I'm waiting for the statue. <laughs> Okay, I will give my history here, and I've said this before, that I was not allowed to watch R-rated movies when I was a kid. I was basically raised as veal, and the other thing that, to, that goes along with that is I obeyed my parents, so I did not watch R-rated movies. They said, no, I did not. So R-rated movies were horribly off-limits, and horror movies were at the top of the list. And naturally, when I'm not allowed to watch horror movies, the first thing I do is I want to watch horror movies. <laughs> so I would I would go into Blockbuster Video or the video stores, and I would always be transfixed by the horror section. And I always look at the boxes, and I try to picture what the movies were like inside. And I knew that there were a couple of these big, scary slasher movies that everyone you know knew about. Halloween was one, but Halloween was not the big one. The big one, of course, Matt, what would be the franchise that's all the critics hated and had the horrible, gory kills and there were many sequels? What would that one be? Oh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> yes, Friday the 13th, top on everybody's shit list. But I was transfixed by Friday the 13th, and I always I studied all the boxes and all the, you know, the titles, and I knew everything about these movies that you could infer from the boxes. And I, I will... <laughs> I will tell you right here, I had a friend, my friend named Chris, who was allowed to watch R-rated movies, and I'd always grill him, like, what are they like? What What are these horror movies like? And he told me, he's like, you know, I saw Friday the 13th, I saw all of them, and they're all pretty good. I'm like, are they like the scariest, best movies ever? And he's like, no, Halloween is the best one. Oh. And I, yeah, and Halloween was not on my radar. Because I would, it was not the one that was I was I was really fascinated by, and so I always remember this little ten-year-old recommended. He said, "You know, it's not even close. Halloween's so much better." And so eventually, what happened is I, 
I caught Halloween on TV one night. They would used to run these on TV, and you know, on TV they edit it down, so it's not really R-rated. So I could, I could justify the loophole that I was defying my parents that I could watch Halloween. And I remember sitting there at night, I'm like 12 or 13, watching Halloween on a little 8-inch TV, just watching this at night in the dark. And I was just fascinated by how good it was and how much it drew me into it and like how every single thing worked in this movie. And it, it became literally for me the template of what every horror movie should be after that, which, as we'll learn, was not that out of you know, context because it really is the template for what every horror movie is. But that's my background that I, I fell in love with horror movies that night watching Halloween, the TV edit on uh, like <laughs> 1986 or something. Oh, wow. That's far out. Yeah, I think I might have caught this one first, too, on TV, but I think it was on, like, IFC, so they had all the good stuff in. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I caught, yeah, I think I caught a whole lot of this, this, the autumn I decided I was going to be a horror fan. I caught Halloween, Dawn of the Dead, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre all on IFC, and I was like, I am, I am transformed all of a sudden. <laughs> That's, that's a good little starter kit you got there. <laughs> Halloween, Dawn of the Dead, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is one of the most intense horror movies ever. Well done. <laughs> well, I didn't know what I was doing. I was improving this, and it's like I, I couldn't ask Dad to rent these movies. I couldn't go secretly buy them and stash them under my bed, though I eventually did get a copy of Friday the 13th and keep it stashed under my bed for most of my teenagehood. Um but, you know, watch these on TV. I press record on the v, on the VCR, and uh, it was a spiritual awakening, I will say. <laughs> this is the difference between Matt and a normal person. Most normal guys stash, like, porn under their bed. No, Matt's got Friday the 13th hidden under his bed. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, it's funny that we both saw this on TV, and this delves into one of the, the plot lines I want to talk about on this podcast, is that Halloween... If you edit it down for TV, there isn't that much you have to cut out. And this is one of the things I really, really, really want to beat over people's heads here, that this yes. is such a mild movie, and it's got such a bad reputation over the years as being this bloody slasher, but it's not. And, again, you, you can show it on TV almost uncut, and it would pass for a PG-13. And this is, I know, we've talked about this before. Yes, yeah. I mean, save for a little bit of language and the slightest, slightest, like, 15 seconds worth of nudity it is totally a pg-13 movie i mean this day and age you know they would uh, don't get me started on what they would do to halloween in this day and age i've suffered through rob zombie's movie twice and uh, it's one of the few movies that actually gets me angry okay um one other thing i wanted to say is that this you might you might like this matt is that back in the uh, mid-90s, I started buying all my horror movies, and I'd buy them all on VHS, of course, because there's no DVD yet. And yeah. the, the copy I bought of Halloween, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, is that they made a mistake, and they put the TV version on VHS instead of the theater version. <laughs> and so oh, for, years, yeah, for years, I had this weird copy of Halloween that nobody else had. That not only are like the naughty bits, the little tiny naughty bits cut out, but there's three or four extra scenes that most people have never seen. Have you heard about this? I've actually watched that version on TV. I haven't heard about the VHS version, but I think I've seen the exact version you're talking about. Is that the one with, you know, sister and all that written? Uh, yeah, it's got sister and it's got there's a trial like a trial or a hearing for Michael's competence. And there's a scene where uh, PJ Souls comes running into Jamie Lee Curtis's house saying that some guy's stalking her. Oh, okay, fun. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all very necessary material to put on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and, and what sucks is I, I I was annoyed by that copy because that wasn't the real version of Halloween, so I sold it on eBay for like two bucks. And I'm like, that was probably a collector's item. I probably should have kept that. It's a rare misprint, like a misprinted baseball card. So, yeah, there's some collectors out there who are probably you may have been made very happy that day. <laughs> Okay, so let's go into the back history of this movie, and there's a lot to talk about. This I'm warning people this might be a two-hour podcast, so I hope you like Matt and me. <laughs> yes. Um, first off, the inspirations for this movie. Now, I will let you, you're a horror historian just like I do. Which movies, you know, inspired this one? Uh, biggest one would definitely have to be Black Christmas. I mean, that's the top of the heap there, as far as I recall. And um, Westworld, I want to say? Yeah, those are the two. What happened was, I was just reading this, that John Carpenter was inspired by the movie Black Christmas, which I will give a shameless plug, one of the first movies I did on Staff Picks, and a good episode, I must say. And, that was a very fun one, yeah. Yeah, and John Carpenter wanted to write a sequel to it. He's like, that is such a fantastic movie, and that is really the first slasher movie. And he wrote to the director, Bob Clark, can I write a sequel? And Bob Clark's like, sure. So Halloween started as a sequel to Black Christmas. Black Christmas, this was supposed to be Black Christmas 2. It eventually evolved into a script called The Babysitter Murders. And it was supposed to take place over a couple days. And for budgetary reasons, they couldn't do it over a couple days. They're like, we have to have everything happen on one night. And one of the producers said, uh, let's just set it on Halloween. I mean, sure, that's a good scary night. And th this is what I love. They looked up through the film registry. There had never been a movie called Halloween prior to this. That just boggles the mind. I mean, you would have at least expected some religious movie or something about the horrors of All Hallows' Eve and those dangerous pagans by this point. But there you have it. Yeah, it was just sitting out there, this copyright waiting to be used. And so they named it Halloween, and they came up with this faceless, nameless killer. He doesn't really have a name in the movie. It's only uttered kind of in, in passing. But they modeled the killer in this after Yule Brenner's character in a movie called Westworld, which Matt had mentioned. And Westworld is another movie I'm dying to do on staff picks because it's fascinating. But, yeah, so Black Christmas plus Westworld becomes Halloween. I want to put out one of my favorite behind-the-scenes things, a person who doesn't get enough credit. You always hear John Carpenter. You almost never hear about Deborah Hill, and she is one of the most important things to this movie's success that I just want to plug real quick. Um, Deborah Hill was his writing and producing partner, and she wrote all the portions of this movie with the young female dialogue that this movie really would have felt awkward without, because I love John Carpenter as a filmmaker, but he's also not the best filmmaker, and he needed someone to help him out to pump this one up to the movie we wound up getting. Yeah, you said he's not the best filmmaker, and I would agree with that. You're talking more about dialogue. like. Yes. Just like in a master class in tension and lighting and atmosphere and music. I don't know if there's ever been a better horror movie than this, but yeah, the dialogue, he's that's not really what he does. Yeah, he is not he is an amazing director of scenes and a terrible director of actors. I mean, Halloween is your favorite horror movie. The Thing is my favorite horror movie, both John Carpenter movies, and I can tell you the pluses and minuses in both of them all probably come down to him. Hmm, that's interesting. So the long and the short, I mean, I find he did write all the Dr. Loomis scenes in this movie, and those are some of the best insanity in horror movie history, which I'm sure we will get into in detail later. Um, but the parts that make the teenage girl scene so authentic, I just want to thank Deborah Hill wherever she is now since she died of cancer a good decade plus back and just for doing a fantastic job and 
actually being the first person to play Michael Myers in a Halloween movie. We'll get into that when we get into the opening. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought her up because she was a very prominent part of this movie. And yeah, like you said, very much an equal of John Carpenter. She was the co-producer. She was married to him. And like you said, she wrote all the dialogue. Although I do have to give a shout out to John Carpenter. Uh, Dr. Loomis, Donald Pleasance, has two fantastic monologues in this movie. Oh, that, yeah. Like, I wouldn't say they're, like, as good as Quint and Jaws, but they're up there pretty high. And he wrote both those. So I will – I'm not going to completely sell him out and say he can't write dialogue because I even wrote him in my notes. I want to quote these verbatim. I just love these these monologues he has. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm wondering if we have the same two monologues written because I wrote a couple of his monologues word for word because they were just so – intense i'm just trying to wonder what it would have sounded like if he were writing teenage girls and that probably wouldn't have come across as well <laughs> we're getting into the plot of the movie here but a couple other things yeah with the music we have talked about how the oh, music yeah. oh it's so good and again this movie does not work at all without the music without the music and there's a uh, famous urban legend out there that john carpenter took the rough draft of or the rough cut of halloween showed it to an executive and they're like this is stupid this is just people walking around and then he added the music, and they're like, this is terrifying. So that's what I always think of when I watch Halloween. It's just people walking around. It, it really is, and the music actually sells it because, yeah, this would be a movie as dull basically as, like, Man Was the Hands of Fate without uh, the proper accompaniment. And, yeah, John Carpenter's synth score on this, that was a game changer. I mean, how many 80s movies afterward followed trying to think that, you know, if maybe we have a synth score as good – we can make it as good as Halloween and a false uh, comparison, I will say, because ha Halloween is untouchable on that front. And that's really just him on a, like a little piano, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think that one came down more to budget than anything else. I'm sure he would have loved a big swelling orchestra, but instead he creates this weird, atonal, perfect little theme that is now, I mean, the, you, you hear it and you get the chills, you get the darkness, you get the feel of the Halloween season, and it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> I think I read somewhere that the reason that, that song stands out so much and why it's so eerie is because it's in a weird key or a weird tempo. It's like 5-4 tempo, which is not what you normally hear. So it's just already atonally just sounds weird when you hear it. Okay, so a couple of things, more things before we get in here. Basically, this is the first slasher movie although one would argue black christmas but the truth of the matter is black christmas was never a huge hit and this movie halloween i think was produced for three hundred thousand dollars it grossed like 40 million it was one of the most successful movies of all time so this becomes the first slasher movie where everything after it tries to copy it so you can take that friday the 13th and shove it up your butt because halloween came first and halloween's way better and uh, although i guess we could get into this for a second would you what would you consider the first modern horror movie? I'm not, I'm not arguing that Halloween is. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Uh, I'm of the traditional school that Night of the Living Dead probably kicked it off. Other than that, I would say probably after that, really getting into 70s horror, uh, probably the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Night of the Living Dead is usually my choice, although I hear some people argue Psycho is really the first modern horror movie. But I, I usually go Night of the Living Dead. But again, then you get Black Christmas, then you get Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then you get this. And they're all like they're all innovative in their own ways. But like in terms of first slasher movie, I think this one you have to say is just because Black Christmas admittedly was first, but nobody saw it. Exactly. I mean, you don't see movies afterwards saying they were ripping off Black Christmas. I mean, I wish... 
more had because we might have a higher class of films to go through from there. Probably not because studio systems, but I can dream. Uh, but Halloween, yeah, that's the one that set the mold. That's the one that set the model for both good and bad aspects going forward for at least the next 20 years. The other, the two other things I wanted to get into is the casting of this. Jamie Lee Curtis, her first big movie, and really oh, yeah. only got the job because her mother was in uh, Psycho. Psycho. <laughs> so, so that's it. That's really why she was cast. John Carpenter wasn't even sure he wanted her. And uh, Sam Loomis, Dr. Sam Loomis, the intrepid psychiatrist played by Donald Pleasance. I will throw out some names here that people may be interested in that Christopher Lee was the one they really wanted for that role. And the only reason he didn't do it because they couldn't pay him. They had no money for the budget. So Christopher Lee turned it down, later called it the biggest mistake of his career that he turned down Halloween. And it went to Donald, I will do anything for a paycheck, Pleasance. Yeah, well, that's probably in the midst of his heavy alcohol years, so that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> okay, and right before we go into the plot, I have to th say three things here. Matt and I are going to try very hard to dispel three myths that have always been out there about Halloween. First one, bloody slasher movie. This one always gets the blame for being bloody, horrible, you know, yeah, visceral, a slasher, just a nasty, X-rated, gory movie, and... It's not. It's not even close to that. Can I do the second one? What is the second one, Matt? <laughs> second one is that this is the movie that kicked off the Virgin Survives trend. Yes, Laurie does not technically have sex over the course of this movie, but we will find a survivor who first off wants to get laid, smokes weed in, the, in a car on a way to a babysitting job, and is a nice, responsible person, but is still a person, flaws and all, including a desire to get some. Yeah, I'm very happy you said that, and this is, people have, have told, asked me for years why I don't like Scream, and it's because Scream has perpetuated a lot of these myths, and one of these is that the virgin girl is the one who survives, and by having sex it makes you die in a horror movie. As Matt just pointed out, and as we will ram home, perhaps not that's the, not the best term to use, we, as we will drive home several times during this podcast, uh, Lori's virginity has nothing to do with why she survives, and John Carpenter has taken a hit for this for years. People are always on his butt and on Deborah Hill's butt that they created this trope that only virgins survive, and that's not actually what happens in this movie, so I'm glad we're, uh, you brought that up, Matt. In Scream's defense, all the movies that followed really did follow that trope, unfortunately, or a lot of them did. You and me will always disagree on Scream. You think it's a piece of shit. I think it's one of my all-time favorite movies. And, yeah, I will say in that one, it is taking a hit at a lot of the other movies that followed in that. All right, fair enough, because we're going to fight on the next point anyway, so I'll save it for here. <laughs> All right. The other thing is that I hate sequels, and Matt does not mind sequels, <laughs> so we have, we have agreed to disagree. Now, naturally, there are many Halloween sequels out there, so some people view this as a franchise. I do not view it as a franchise. I will always view this as a standalone movie, as it was intended to be. I don't consider it a franchise. And because this is a standalone, here's the third myth that I, I am so happy to dispel, that Lori is not Michael's goddamn sister. 
There's no, there's <laughs> nothing in this damn movie that suggests that she's his sister. She's like an afterthought of his murder plan. She's like the third girl. She has nothing to do with his plan. He's after Annie, mostly, and then Lori happens to wander over. So I'm just pointing out right now that any shit that you heard in the sequels that Lori is his sister is not true because he's, because she's not. They're not related at all. Okay, I'm going to say this. In the 2018 sequel, even the people who wrote that movie agree that Laurie was never Michael's sister. They straight up say, yeah, that's just something people made up so it would make more sense. That is actually something that is said in the 2018 Halloween that I think is probably the only thing you would agree with in that movie. But they make it a very firm point early on that Laurie has no relation to Michael whatsoever other than the night they spent on Halloween of 1978. I cannot believe I got you to fold that quickly. <laughs> no, because we are in, we are allowed to disagree with one another. I find disagreement often makes the spice of life, and you are entitled to your incorrect opinion. <laughs> well, see, I had a whole bunch of, of uh, phrases here I was going to use to shoot you down, and now I can't use them. Let me have to cross them off the list, like my exorcist quote here where I was going to write, sequels suck cocks in hell. I can't use that now, so let me cross that off. <laughs> Okay, what's the next one? What's the next one? I want to hear. <laughs> no. no, that's it. We'll just save it for later. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, a lot of you know, I will, I will concede that a lot of sequels do things incorrectly, but I stand for the right for sequels to exist because a lot of really good ones have existed. They may be a minority compared to the bad sequels that have been put out there, but hey, Mister, I love Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Hello. <laughs> Sorry that your audio cut out there for a second. I couldn't hear that. Okay, and just to point out that I'm a bit of a hypocrite, I should point out that I actually kind of like Halloween, too. So we'll just leave on that. Oh, especially the Ben Tramer scene, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, we'll get to poor Ben Tramer in a second. Okay, so Matt, I believe we have set a staff picks record. We've done about 26 minutes on the intro. We haven't even got to the movie yet. Worth it. Worth it. I mean, there's so there's just so much there's so much to say about this movie. I mean, we could you do a whole week's worth of stuff about this movie alone, and instead we got to condense it down here. I mean, my notes have all sorts of things crossed out. Sophie's choice in all that here, and I'm just this is hard. Not as hard as Bob when he talks about Lindsay. Oh yes, not as hard as Bob when he talks about Lindsay. We're gonna get to Bob later, and my I'll, I'll give my theory on that after all the bad jokes because they're the bad jokes are worth it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and now now it becomes a game of Matt and I trying to outdark each other and trying to render the other one speechless as we go through Halloween and crack jokes about it. Are you ready for this, Matt? I think you're going to beat me, but I'm ready. I think I, we can at least do a fair competition of who does the worst Donald Pleasance impression, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing very fine last night. Uh, is loose. The evil is loose. <laughs> That's terrible. There's no way mine's worse than that. I don't think you even tried for an accent. I at least did. I at least half-assed that. <laughs> Let's do this. Okay, so here we go. Halloween, we're going to walk through the plot, and admittedly, I know most of you have probably seen this, but Matt and I enjoy mystery science theater, and we enjoy riffing on stuff, so we're going to go through this movie with the proper combination of reverence for how awesome it is and how well done John Carpenter did, and making fun of all the goofy crap in this movie, because there is a hell of a lot of goofy crap, and it does not get made fun of often enough. Uh, it is such a great and bad movie at the same time. It is, it, it's almost a student film, but one that's very slickly made, because the people at least knew what they were doing. 
Yeah, and I would always argue the last 20 minutes in particular. The last 20 minutes are so good, you can overlook a lot of the goofiness because it's like you're just transfixed by the end. So that's the argument that, yeah, John Carpenter may have written kind of a goofy movie, but he saves it at the end. And that's, and that's again, one thing I would like to bring up on staff picks, just because I love a movie doesn't mean because it, it's like a perfect, flawless masterpiece. Sometimes movies that have huge flaws and are goofy are I love even more. So it's... It's a weird. It's kind of a weird show to do and to bring up an episode, a movie like Halloween, because I don't think it's like a flawless movie. But to me, that makes it better. Yeah, because you can't put anything on too high a pedestal. Uh, it's when you can take something apart that you can really actually see even better. I think the parts that are really great. It's because yeah, this part sucks. It really does. But you can see what they were trying for with this next part here, and they really landed those other parts. But yeah, it, it really, this movie is something special and something terrible and something terribly special. <laughs> yeah, and again, it just ushers back to the argument that this was such a low-budget movie by a bunch of first-time actors and director that was just barely starting out. So it's like, there are flaws, I mean, in between the genius, like, there, well, I, we didn't even mention that John Carpenter started using, what, the uh, the steady cam. he was one of the first directors to use that. Right. Yeah. And you can occasionally see the guy, uh, the cameraman almost tripping over things, I believe. <laughs> OK, so here we go. We're going to walk into Halloween. It starts with, oddly enough, it starts with the Halloween music. Just this awesome opening credit sequence of it's just basically a fade in on a pumpkin with the word Halloween. And you get a good four or five minutes of just the music on repeat. It's a good, it's a good, a uh, introduction to this movie. Cause that's what you'll be seeing a lot of uh, darkness and that, and that song. Yeah. And that, that faint orange glow. I mean, I'm not a big opening credits person unless something's happening during the credits. I can never fast forward through the Halloween credits though, just because I can get lost in that music and that slow building dread as we zoom in on the jack-o'-lantern. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, I, I've said this before, but I, I have a, a very busy house on Halloween. I have a, We have hundreds of trick-or-treaters come to my house. We live in a very busy neighborhood. And it's funny, even if I dress up as Jason, like every year I rotate which character I am, I always use the Halloween music just because it's the best. And sometimes kids will call me out like I'm dressed up like Jason playing the Halloween music, and they're like, that's the wrong music. And I'm like, fuck you. It's still better than you, you little turd. But anyway, <laughs> I don't specifically say that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember very distinctly the Halloween we were over there when the kids were trying to caress you when you were Jason. And I was like, Jason used a machete and you had an axe or something. <laughs> you could have just chased them down and you would have made their night. Yeah, in later years, I did end up killing a couple kids. So it's, eventually I snapped. But yes, the Halloween music, I would argue, is maybe, you know, Star Wars theme aside. This might be the greatest um, movie theme music ever. I will, I will die on that hill. Oh, I, I could I couldn't pick, but yeah, I would. Uh, emotionally, I I can never really say anything but Star Wars, but Halloween's at least in the top three from there. <laughs> okay, so we go to the opening shot of the movie, and it starts in Haddonfield, Illinois, in the Midwest, in 1963. And I always love telling the story is that in uh, it opens with an exterior shot of this house, the Myers house, and you just it's like a static shot, just standing there. It's like a little city cam shot. And the music starts playing, like uh, the little piano, dun, 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 like, and nothing's happening. And I always say, I had a girlfriend in high school, her name was Carrie, and she did not like scary movies, but because I am charming, I talked her into watching Halloween with me one night, and she came over, and this is how far she got in the movie before she said, I'm scared, please hold me. 
we got eight seconds into the movie, this establishing shot freaked her out. Well, at least he didn't dump any pig's blood on her. That would have ended things even worse. That's more of an end of the night tradition. That's not a beginning of the night. Ah. Yeah, so we open with the Myers house and this establishing shot, and it's all shot in first person where you're just looking at someone and you wind up being the killer. There's a spoiler, there's a killer in this movie. And No. Oh, man, I've been watching the wrong movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it turned out this killer goes into the house and he grabs a knife and he goes upstairs. Oh, wait, no, first off, no, first off, he, first off, he looks through the window. Let's note that the whole part of he looks through the window and we see this couple making out. It's a teenage girl and her boyfriend, and they're asking, what was that sound? It's like she says, oh, it's Michael. He's around here somewhere, because she's clearly supposed to be babysitting her younger brother out trick-or-treating, and instead is, you know, spending her time with her boyfriend, which, as people took the wrong lesson moving forward, is not going to end terribly well. And, yeah, from the outside perspective, we get this great, great moment of looking up, watching the lights go out on her bedroom window, and that's when things start to pick up. As you say, he goes, you know, you see this perspective going into the house, picking up a knife and the boyfriend leaving. And this is something I actually timed just for the record. From the moment the light, the bedroom light turns out to the moment the boyfriend leaves one minute, 10 seconds. One of the shortest sexual encounters in human history. And one of the earliest examples here, how this movie has no idea how to handle time. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, there will be several instances in this movie where time makes no sense. Yeah, so he pleasured his girlfriend in a minute and four seconds, and not only did they consummate the act, he had time to get dressed and leave. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, this movie, if anything, is a very good sign, uh, is a very good example for high school boyfriends of how not to sex. <laughs> Halloween, how not to sex. Yeah, so this uh, anonymous killer goes in and grabs a knife out of the kitchen drawer and goes upstairs, and the older sister, who has just been rammed by her boyfriend for a, mi a full minute, is, is sitting there uh, is stroking her hair, brushing her hair, and getting dressed, and then she is murdered in a surprisingly non-graphic scene. It's just basically you see it through the killer's eyes. He's wearing a mask, a little clown mask. This scene is one of the first major psycho homages. You can see a lot of the similar hand things. I like kind of actually John Carpenter giving a bit of a hand job to Psycho from the beginning. Um, I hope it lasted more than a minute. Well, it lasted for as long as Halloween is. <laughs> so 90-something minutes? <laughs> yes. Okay, we'll get to that. There's a lot of Psycho references in this movie. It's an homage to Psycho. But, yeah, so he, this person kills the sister, and she's like, Michael, ah! And she gets stabbed. And again, it's almost bloodless. There's hardly anything in the scene. And this movie gets a horrible reputation for being graphic, but it's not. And then you get the yeah. the twist reveal that we find out the killer runs downstairs and then the parents come up and they drive up and they unmask the killer. And, oh, my God, it's a little, what, eight-year-old boy or something like that? Six. He was six in this one. Yeah. I'll try to do the dad's voice as best I can, where it's just this big reveal, pulls off the mask, and goes, Michael? I always laugh at that for some reason. <laughs> so that is not how you think a parent would respond when they see the little brother had stabbed the older sister, the Michael? Yeah, as the parents just stand there, looking at him sternly as we get this long camera pull back, no action or anything, just staring at this six-year-old holding a giant eight-inch butcher's knife covered in blood. <laughs> I mean, it was the 70s, Matt. It was a free time. Uh, true, and, you know, it's like... Ugh, our kid's a serial killer now. Ugh, we gotta send him someplace, I guess. 
damn it. What are the Wilsons going to say? Yeah, exactly. I'm, oh, no, it's the 60s then. I'm sorry. I mean, you, you know the serial killer history more than I as to whether or not this would have been in fashion yet. Yeah, well, he's not a serial killer. He's only killed one person. So technically, we're just a murderer at this point. So he has not graduated. Oh, uh, okay. Well, he, he, he works away. He's, he works toward elevating himself by the end, at least. Yeah, so Michael has killed his sister and his only sister, I should point out. And, um, only sister. Yeah, thank you. So they cart him away, and he's arrested a little six-year-old who's a little psychopath. And now we flash forward 15 years to 1978, and uh, we don't, they don't really spell this out, but it's Michael's 21st birthday. He is being transferred from this mental hospital he's been in for all his life to, like, a regular hospital. And this is where we meet the man who will forever be chasing him, the intrepid Dr. Sam Loomis. Oh, God, and it's... It's a one of those performances that's both so amazing and so cheesy that you could have only gotten from Donald Pleasance in his heavy alcohol years, which were probably the last 20 or 30. Now, this begs the question, of course, is Dr. Loomis a good doctor? Uh, no. No, not at all. Now, wait a I minute. Mean, why, is... why so quick to, to dismiss him? Okay, well, we can argue on this one, but let me get his... Speech here. Oh, yeah, the whole bit about spending only eight years trying to reach the boy and another seven trying to keep him locked up. I may have had the order mixed up, but, you know, giving up on a kid halfway through your entire psychiatric experience because you believe him to be pure evil without even a routine soul smear. I don't think he's a good doctor. I don't think pure evil is a diagnosis in the DSM book, Tom, to be honest. It, it may have been once, but now they probably have it under a whole spectrum of uh, conditions. So where do you fall in the spectrum of evil? Yeah, the, okay, he's, you know, uh, well, I guess he's the boogeyman. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah, so Dr. Loomis has diagnosed his child as pure evil. <laughs> and I like that not only does he refer to him as pure evil, he doesn't even call the boy by his name. He calls him It. And him? Yeah. As the nurse says, don't you think you could refer to it as him? To which Loomis responds, if you say so. Yes. So Michael, this little weird child who killed his sister when she he was six, is now 21. And, and the doctor says he, he hasn't spoken in 15 years. We're just supposed to pick him up and transfer him to the state, to like the judge. We're going to take him to a judge. They're going to declare his competency. They're going to drug this kid until he's one step away from dead. So, yeah, perhaps maybe not the most progressive doctor here, Dr. Sam Loomis. No, not a, not in the slightest. I mean, we don't see him with any other patients, but if he brings this same intensity to every patient he worked with, that's a whole TV series on its own that I would watch. <laughs> you are pure evil. I want to see Dr. Loomis running like a weight loss clinic. Like, this man's pure fat. He's pure fat. He's gone. It's gone. <laughs> um, his motivational speaker sessions. Ah, uh, your life is pure evil, but buy my set of DVDs and you will no longer be. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Your accent's getting a little better. Oh, thank you. <laughs> they So they arrive at the sanitarium to pick up Michael to transfer him in front of a judge, and 
this is one of those scenes I wish they would have done a little better because they don't really explain what happened. Yeah. All of a sudden, all these wackos are just walking around on the lawn at the sanitarium. And Loomis is like, oh, my God, what happened? And the nurse is like, what, do they just let them walk around? And ostensibly, there's a scene missing here where there was a lightning strike or something or some kind of mechanical function. Something went out and the gate stopped working. I don't know. All we know is that all the patients in the sanitarium are walking around in the rain with no explanation. And Dr. Loomis jumps out. He's like, oh, my God, we have to stop him. And this is where Michael makes his great getaway. Yeah, he jumps on top of the car. So naturally, the nurse's first instinct is, I should roll down my window and see what just jumped on top of my car at an institute for the criminally insane. Great instinct, nurse. And, yeah, Michael, this hand reaches in and grabs her. She jumps to the other window, and this hand with a a wrench taped to it smashes the window. I don't think we were supposed to see the wrench, though. I think that one just may be a good old-fashioned goof. And uh, she jumps out of the car. Michael takes the car, and Michael drives off in the car. (laughs) Yes, leading... Leading to one of the all-time great discussion questions, and like I said, this movie is simultaneously a masterpiece and a mystery science theater movie, and this question has been discussed for years, and I'm sure Matt and I will have endless theories on it. How the hell does Michael know how to drive a car, considering he's been in a hospital since he was six, and they make no effort to explain it, he just tears off, and later in the movie he's shown, like, following traffic signals and driving politely? Like, how, how the hell does Michael Myers know how to drive a car? Because he's the boogeyman. I'd like to point out another line from this scene, just because I have a good story to go with it. As when as Michael drives away, you have uh, Loomis just shouting, "Is gone! Is gone from here! The evil is gone!" This line actually got me in serious trouble in high school once. <laughs> Shortly after I discovered Halloween, I was being clever teenager man. And there was a teacher I didn't like, a math teacher who was probably no worse than any other math teacher, just a little on the stern side. So privately with friends, I nicknamed her The Evil because, hey, I got it from Halloween. It's so clever. This goes on for a couple weeks until she pulls me aside after class one day and says, so I heard you called me The Evil. Awkward pause time. And then basically me apologizing profusely because I was just being a mean, weird little teenager. And she said, accepted my apology. And we had a good year there. But uh, for the very good three, four minutes, I was pretty sure I was about to lose my entire high school career. (laughs) And I know this got doubly awkward when you said the same thing at her funeral. Oh, yeah. No, that was that was a different story entirely. I don't like to talk about it very much. The cops got involved and. Yeah, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't we refer to her as it, Matt? <laughs> I think I think I'll just keep it at her. I I felt bad enough about that one already because I I am a sick and twisted horror fan as you, but at my core, probably much like you, I'm also just a big softy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes, Michael escapes, and Doctor Loomis says he's gone. He's gone. The evil is gone. And then this other line that I love because it's not grammatically correct. He's gone from here. Like, <laughs> that's not the way that you'd say it. That's just a weird way. He's gone from here. Well, maybe maybe a British person would say that. Maybe maybe a drunk British person would say that. <laughs> He's gone to the loo. He's taking a lift. He's on the flat. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, 
Michael has escaped. He's driven away, which is one of the greatest plot holes in a movie later, and will will lead to the one of one of the funniest non plot hole explanations later. But first, now we got to go meet Lori. Yes, uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis in her first role, and you know, again, John Carpenter is not a great director, but you can see she had the talent straight up from the beginning here, at least as well as John Carpenter could direct her with. Yeah, okay, well, before we get to Laurie, I want to talk about the establishing shot. There's a really famous establishing shot here where it says uh, we've left uh, the, the Smith's Grove where the sanitarium was. We go to Haddonfield now. This is Michael's childhood home. We're back here in 1978. It's Halloween Eve, I believe, or October 30th. And the scene sh- starts, and I love this. This is a really cool little trivia fact. The camera is placed on the ground. And it's this really cool establishing shot of just an intersection, and it looks creepy. And there's no reason for it to look creepy. It just is because it's a weird angle. And I know, Matt, you can probably tell me what that intersection is. Oh, I don't know the streets off the top of my head, but I believe it's just across the street from the South Pasadena Public Library. It is. It's also very close to the Pee Wee's Big Adventure house, having been there. Oh, my God. Right. I forgot all about that one. I guess my dad was not a Pee Wee Herman fan, so I guess that would explain why I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, so every time I go to South Pasadena, I have to go to this intersection, and I take this picture, this establishing shot that they use in the movie. And the way John Carpenter did it in the movie, he just put the camera on the ground. And you're not used to seeing a picture taken from that angle. That's why it looks so weird. But it's a very iconic establishing shot. And from here we meet Jamie Lee Curtis playing Laurie Strode, the daughter of the town realtor. Yeah, I also believe in that shot you can see a few palm trees because, let's face it, this is Southern California. I mean, the great palm trees of Illinois can't compare. How dare you point out flaws in this movie, Matt? How dare you? Uh, I know it's sacrilege, but we must, we must, for we critique and we praise. <laughs> yes. So... Lori is babysitting tonight. She leaves her house, and her dad has instructed her that he's trying to sell this house down the street, the Myers house, the old haunted house where Michael killed his sister many years ago. His only sister, I should point out. And, uh, right, his only sister. Yeah. So as she's walking to the Myers house to drop the key off, she meets little Tommy Doyle, who she's going to be babysitting tonight. And uh, can, we wait, can, we, can we stop and note another major plot hole here? Whatever happened to the people who were supposed to check out the Myers house that day? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I never thought of that. So it was a no sale. So, yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe maybe Michael killed them off camera later in the evening. We're not sure. Yeah, I mean, there's because, yeah, he says specifically that he is showing a couple of people the Myers house later. And Michael Myers spends a surprising amount of the day there, considering how weird time works in Haddonfield. That there should be at least three more bodies we don't see, which is, yeah, again, one of the many, many plot holes that gives this movie the spice of life. <laughs> okay, and we learn from little Tommy, little Tommy Doyle, that Laurie is going to be walking to the Myers house, and he goes, don't go there. That's a spook house. That's a haunted house. My friend told me awful stuff happened there once. So this is like the urban legend, the house you don't go in, and Lori's not scared. She's like, I'm just selling it for my dad, whatever, and she goes up, and she drops out the key, and... You know, for a movie that doesn't really, like, I don't consider this a jump scare movie, but there are a lot of really effective little minor jump scares. There's one right at the start here where she drops off the key in the Myers house, and as she's walking away, you kind of see Michael's head just pop out of the shadows from behind her. Yeah. Oh, no, this one is, 
as much as you might argue otherwise, I would say this one is a pretty notorious jump scare movie. There are a lot of them. They aren't as big and dramatic and musicy as most movies, but there are a ton in Halloween. And it, the thing is, John Carpenter at least knows how to do them well compared to a lot of other people. Yeah, they don't feel like cheap shots. I think that's the difference. They don't feel gratuitous. Yeah, they feel like this is this is you know this is happening right now. This scare is earned. Okay, so from here on out, Lori has dropped the key off at the Myers house, and she walks away, and Michael comes out of the house and just kind of looks at her and stares at her. He's like, girl, pretty girl. Ooh, female. Me like female. Yes. As Dr. Loomis would say, he got horny. I, yeah, I've been saving that one. I've been saving up my Dr. Loomis. I have a whole list of things he could say, but yeah, <laughs> Dr. Loomis will forever say he got blank of Michael. So he got horny is a good one. So Michael sees Jamie Lee, who is not his sister, by the way, and he's turned on by her. And this will lead to him stalking her for a while for the rest of the day until he sees a hotter girl later, Annie. So I'm just going to point that out. Yes, yeah, because Laurie's not his sister, so, you know, he has no reason to project that on her at all. Yes, okay, so here we go. Let's talk about this driving plot hole, and this is a scene that I've forever loved ever since I first saw this movie with Dr. Loomis storming out of the hospital, steaming mad that they let Michael Myers escape, and he's like, I told everybody, nobody listened, and they're like, you should have warned people he was dangerous. He's like, I told everybody, and this is where, Matt, Matt, explain the, the driving conversation. This is a fun one. Yes, I mean, the, where the, the other doctor basically says, how could he have gotten away? He, he, you know, he was catatonic for 15 years. And Loomis's response to this is, he was doing very well last night. Maybe someone around here gave him lessons. That's the explanation we get for how Michael can drive. <laughs> yes, it's the greatest non-explanation you're ever going to hear in a movie that the other character correctly points out, Michael can't drive. And the doctor says he was doing very well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I can fudge a lot of this with, you know, Michael is pure evil. He is powered by pure evil. Pure evil gives him the skills he needs. But the movie's desire to actually explain that is just, oh, man, it's so funny. He got competent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, I should point out, just in the interest of trivia for our listeners, that in the novelization, apparently there was a novelization of this book, of this movie, they tried to explain away that plot hole, and they said that in all the years that Dr. Loomis would drive Michael to his court hearings, Michael would sit in the back seat and just look and watch what he was doing. So in the book, they oh, actually bullshit. do. I know. <laughs> no, of course it's bullshit, but they try. They try. No, I, and as a writer, I will say I appreciate the effort, but that's not enough. I was just waiting for some scenes where Michael's using like correct hand signals. Like I'm going to be turning left. He's got his hand out. Like how the how the fuck does he know that? And how does he know? How can you check a blind spot in that mask? <laughs> yeah, this is one of the only serial killer movies where the killer effortlessly drives a car through suburban streets. Speed kills, I guess. <laughs> Okay, so there's the driving plot hole that has haunted this movie for years. And now we go to Lori in class. She is in high school, and they're having some uh, lesson on fate or whatever. I don't, I never pay attention to this scene. Because that speech, that speech is terrible. I mean, it's one of those, so many people think they're so clever when they write a classroom scene that they think has big, big themes that the rest of the story will reflect. Fate has nothing to do with Lori. It's just, it's just a speech. 
But we do at least get the great shot, uh, the great shot and psycho reference of her looking out the window and seeing Michael standing by his car outside. <laughs> That's right, because all these good slasher serial killers always have a, a vehicle they have, must be driving around in. But yeah, Michael's standing behind his car. She sees him out the window, and it's a good creepy shot of her being in class, just looking out and absently seeing this guy in a white mask staring at her. Yeah, and she just keeps looking up and down and up and down and. Uh, again, it's a great little reference to a scene very early on in Psycho, except that one was actually kind of a good guy. But, you know, Carpenter at least knew the scary bits to actually lift to make uh, the scene work at its best. OK, two things I have to say about the scene. The first is the teacher who, I, like I said, I never listen to her words because I don't care. But she has one of the worst line reads I've ever heard in a movie where she's like, Lori, what did I just say? And Lori's like, uh, well, you said fate, and fate is blah, blah, blah. And the teacher's like, that's right. And it's like the snottiest little thing. <laughs> and the other thing I have to point out is I just read this on the Internet Movie Trivia database, Internet Movie Database Trivia, that the car, did you hear the story behind the car, the Michael Myers car? Oh, please explain, because I don't know if I've heard this one. Yeah, this is great. So they needed a car for the movie, but they did not have any money in the budget for a car. So they went out to, like, the local Avis rent-a-car, and they just rented a station wagon, and they threw some fake stickers on it, and they threw a little metal, you know, gate in the middle so the front and back would be separated, and they filmed it for the movie, and the rental car place had no idea their car was used in a movie. <laughs> I would not doubt that for even a second. Uh, you, you always hear the greatest stories from low-budget movies. Yeah, that is guerrilla filmmaking right there. Just rent a car and use it and return it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that one. Uh, I can only say the only one I can think of that would top that would still be the Blair Witch Project, where they actually return one of their cameras to the store for extra money. <laughs> All right, so we've seen Laurie at school, and now we're going to see little Tommy Doyle at school. And I always kind of forget he's such a major character in this movie. This is the kid that she's going to be babysitting, and he's coming out of school and he's carrying a pumpkin and. Apparently, it's kind of a game at school that the other kids tease him that the boogeyman is going to kill him. It's like the tease Tommy game every year at Halloween, and it's in full force this oh, year. Man. Yeah, Lonnie and his evil cronies are teasing him. The boogeyman is coming. I get that right? <laughs> that was pretty – that was a good accent. You have a, you have a good Lonnie accent. Uh, Lonnie is – he has like three whole lines in the movie, and he's one of the most memorable characters just because he's such a little twerk. <laughs> yeah, so Tommy is being taunted, and they trip him. These little bullies trip him, and he falls on his pumpkin. And as one of the bullies is running out of the schoolyard, another good jump scare again. I don't, I'm not really a jump scare fan, but there, there's, this is an effective one because you don't see it coming. One of the bullies runs right into Michael Myers, who, like, grabs him and steadies him and keeps him from falling down. So that asshole Michael Myers keeps the kid from tripping. And I want to give the – I want to note – the great restraint here because Michael Myers is famous for his mask, but we don't see it until almost more than halfway through the movie at this point. They cut it out very well in the scene that of Michael stalking most of the Laurie and Tommy throughout the first part of the movie. Yeah, I was going to say you do see it when he's staring at her in the classroom, but it's far from far away. You don't see a close up. Yeah, you don't see the full Shatner of it until you get really close up later on. But that's another story for later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Explain. Well, explain to people the Shatner story because I know most people will know this, but not everyone will. Explain why you called that mask the Shatner. Okay. Well, they were looking for a scary mask for their killer to wear, and they had a very limited budget. 
So they basically, whoever was doing the buying bought two masks from a costume store because this is Southern California in the middle of summer. They're not even, they don't even have the, uh, the selection you would normally have at Halloween time. And they had two masks that looked like they could work. They had a creepy clown mask, which would have worked with the idea they had for, you know, young Michael wearing a clown costume. And then they had this William Shatner mask. I forget if it was William Shatner in Star Trek or if it was William Shatner from Incubus. I feel like I've heard that one connected as well. But either way, it was just this blank person mask. And they took one look at it and realized, you know what? With a little work, this could be creepy. So they, like, cut out holes in the eyes, they spray-painted the skin white, and they teased up the hair, and horror movie legend. Yeah, there's, okay, this is gonna, I I was gonna delve into something here that this ties in nicely, that I've heard people say Michael Myers is not scary. He's not a scary villain like Jason with a hockey mask. And I will agree with you, and I will say that it was never the point to make Michael Myers scary. And that's, I think it's a very, an important distinction here, that you have to look at this as a standalone and not as a franchise. Is that Michael Myers is not intended to be scary looking. He's intended to be blank and emotionless. And that's the whole point of this, the mask, because the mask gives away nothing, and there's no emotion whatsoever. And like he's, he's almost a minor figure in this movie. He's not even a major figure. You don't see him full on for most of the movie. So that's one thing I want to get across. They never referred to him as Michael Myers when they were making it. He was just the shape. He's just this creepy, anonymous figure in the background. Yeah, and that was a, a, a brilliant touch of it because, you know, we don't need to be terrified by how he looks we need to be terrified by his presence this has to be the boogeyman yeah and i think again that's one of the things that's been buried over the years with so many sequels and remakes and reboots is that this gets lumped in with freddy krueger and jason Voorhees, and they all get treated equally but they're really not as a standalone movie this has way more in common with psycho than it does with friday the 13th it's an homage to psycho and he's just a shadowy lurking anonymous killer like i you're almost not even supposed to know his name yeah if they could have edited that out in the beginning i'm sure they would have and they would have just kept him the shape but we needed a little mythos to hang things on but it's the, this just pure emptiness of him when we finally start seeing him that just leaves it completely without an intention that you can read. You know, you can you, if you see a killer's face, you can see what they're going to do. You can see what they're into with this blank white face and these dark, staring, empty eye sockets. You don't know what is going on in Michael's head, and that leaves him so creepy. Yeah, and to follow up on that, I want to point out that he – there are many times in this movie where he could kill somebody, but he doesn't. And that's what I think is interesting, that there's a lot of restraint. This is not a straight slasher movie. He does more just looking than he does killing. And I always find that interesting when I watch this movie, how much of the second half is just him looking at you. Yeah, it's like he has a list of qualifications in his head, and you, you can just see him considering and checking things off of, will this person meet what I need to do right now? And it's just, he's just he's, yeah, he is a stalker for most of this movie. He's not a killer for most of this movie. He is a stalker, and that's something far more sinister. Yeah, he's a stalker until he kills Annie, and it basically, he recreates the murder of his sister, and then it kind of fuels him to keep doing it. But he, like, flips a switch halfway through. 
Yeah. I love how we keep mentioning Annie and we haven't even met her yet in the timeline we're going with. Okay, let's meet Annie. So anyway, we're going to fast forward through a scene that Dr. Loomis is following Michael home. He knows he's coming home to Haddonfield. He knows he's going to do something bad, but he doesn't know what. And he finds like a uh, abandoned tow truck and a mechanic's garage outfit. And this is like, I believe, the only blood in the entire movie. You see the mechanic's body and he's got a small little trickle of blood on his chest. Uh, not true. There's plenty of blood when Jude dies early in the movie. It's like for two seconds, but he looks down at her body and she is covered quite well. And I believe there are also breasts, so I guess you would have had to edit that on TV. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't see that in the version you watched. <laughs> anyway, so now it's time to meet the three girls. And really, the, this movie is a story of five characters. There's three girls they are going to be babysitting. Laura, Annie, and the wonderfully named... Linda Vanderklok, I believe is her name. Uh, Laura? Laura? Did I say Laura? <laughs> you said Laura. I, I'm sorry. Apparently, I just saw this movie for the first time. I've never seen Halloween the previous 500 times. I just called Laurie Strode Laura. I apologize. <laughs> oh, I can give at least one of my favorite stories here. Uh, the brief shot we see of Haddonfield High School, that is actually South Pasadena High School. Um, that we see briefly down a hallway where you can hear some cheerleaders off in the distance. Right past the row of lockers you can see is where I took, I believe, my senior year science class. Um, I have such great memories of that hallway because I saw a jackass I did not like get arrested by the cops out there right in front of that classroom. Wasn't that Devon Graham? Oh, no, he was already taken in. Nah. And this one, I mean, okay, if anyone knows South Pasadena, it is like the most white bread John Hughesian uh, place you'll find in Southern California. Uh, I'm not going to say I was lucky for that, but it was what it was. So seeing a guy I already didn't like get arrested there was both the most random and intense thing that ever happened to me in this otherwise delightfully boring school existence. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sorry your your high school experience was not as interesting as Linda, Annie, and Laura. <laughs> Laura Stroke. Laura Stroke? I was, I was thinking of Linda before, and that's how I got it mixed up. Yes, Lori, Linda, and Annie. And they are the three girls. And again, there's five characters in this movie. Those three, and then Michael Myers, and then Dr. Loomis, and then some kids. That's about it. So these three girls are walking home from school and this is where the timeline is going to get real weird. So we're going to follow us on this with the timeline of this movie. So they're walking home from school and they're all talking about babysitting tonight. Lori and Annie are going to be babysitting and Linda is going to be having sex tonight. And they're all planning out their, their evening and Linda smokes and she says totally a lot, which oh, yeah. <laughs> drives people insane. With if they don't know this movie, they hate Linda. Oh, yeah. And also, she is also not uh, Michael's sister because Michael had only one sister and she was killed by him early on. That's true. Yeah. Little fun fact from Matt Carter. And so as they're <laughs> as they're walking home from school, they pass this very distinctive stone pillar that I can tell you exactly where that is in South Pasadena. I've taken a picture of it many times and it's very distinct and it's still there. You know that pillar, right? Uh, I know a couple of pillars that show up in the movie. I know the one that Lori uh, is sitting on later because I have a great picture of Fiona sitting on it holding a pumpkin. But um, I think I know the one you're talking about, right? This is near Speed Kills, right? Yes, this is the Speed Kills. This is the Devon Graham cameo here. I hate a guy with a, a car and no sense of humor. Okay, yeah. So the three girls are walking home and Michael Myers drives by them because he's been stalking Lori for a while because, again, he's – 
He got horny. He saw her, and he's been following her all day just because he has the hots for her. And now he sees all three girls, and he drives by them, and they're like, who's this guy driving around looking at us? And this is the famous scene, I think, where yeah, Annie says, slow down, speed kills. And Michael slams on the brakes because this is something he would have learned in his many years of driver's ed, how to safely de-escalate a moving vehicle. <laughs> oh, of course. And, you know, a uh, proper amount of time to wait before you drive up onto the sidewalk and run over the girls. And... <laughs> Yeah, they, and they're like, isn't that Devon Graham? I, I love in this movie how they're always throwing out names of guys at the school how, how like we're supposed to know them. Is that Ben Tramer? Is that Devon Graham? It's always a full name, too. It's never a you know a shorthand. How many Devons went to this school? I mean, I'm actually – I didn't spend much time in the 70s, so I couldn't tell you. But is Devon like a common name like Steve or Bob? <laughs> if, if South Pasadena is as white bread as you'd say, I'm guessing there was one Devon Max in the four years of anybody going there. Ouch. Accurate, but ouch. Is that Devon Matthew Graham? <laughs> Moving along. Yeah, so, okay, here's one of the other plot holes in this movie where Annie and Lori are talking about how they're going to be babysitting tonight. And, and Lori's like, oh, you're three doors down from me. We can just keep each other company, which is great until you watch the rest of the movie. And they're not three doors down from each other. They're fucking across the street from each other. So I don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah, I'm guessing they didn't have the houses in Hollywood locked down until they could uh, figure that out. So this is the plan that that Lori and Annie will be babysitting across the street, a.k.a. three doors down from each other. And Linda will be bringing her boyfriend, Bob, over and they will have sex there. So these are not the top top of the line babysitters. Speaking of which, where are all the parents going on Halloween night? <laughs> Why are all the parents abandoning their kids to babysitters on Halloween night? So, you know, the 70s were a wild time, Matt. You know, they had, like, key parties and stuff. So I imagine all ah. the parents of South Pasadena are in a wild orgy with the Wallaces and the Doyles. Oh. Uh, that brings shivers. I mean, lest ye judge, you have not seen Mrs. Doyle and Mrs. Wallace. So I don't know who you are to judge, Matt Carter. Matthew Anthony Carter, or whatever your middle name is. Waylon. <laughs> all right. Filed away. Thank you. No problem. And yeah, you're absolutely right. They, that, that, that might have been uh, worth the entire experience if we actually got to see Mrs. Doyle, Mrs. Wallace, and Mrs. Uh, Strode, and so on and so forth. The, the great Haddonfield Key Party, one of the scenes that was cut out of this movie. <laughs> and always on Halloween, where the parents ditch their kids to go trick-or-treating with babysitters. <laughs> Yeah, so, again, these are not the top-of-the-line babysitters that they are going to be getting high, and Linda is openly planning to come over and have sex at one of their houses. And, and not only that, but Annie is also insinuating she'll be having sex tonight. So, again, these kids are not in the most capable of hands. Yeah, no, I mean, if we use the phrase impressionable youth, they would learn all sorts of things from these, their babysitters. <laughs> or from Bob. Yeah, we'll get into Bob. Oh, will we get into Bob. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. One of the best scenes in the movie. Again, there's we're making fun of it, but there's like six really iconic horror scenes in this movie that I think are fantastic. This is the hedge scene, which oh, yes. has got to be one of the greatest little horror moments ever. Yeah, you you explain this one to people. This is for for although I will say this is a very famous landmark in South Pasadena. I've been to this hedge many times. I have taken many people to this hedge. It still looks exactly the same. You can recreate it. It's a really cool little place. 
Yeah, I mean, well, there's not a whole lot to the scene, as we say. There's not a whole lot to the movie, but that doesn't make it any less cool, where they've dropped Linda off at her house, and Lori and Annie are walking along. Annie's looking in, in her book bag, and Lori looks up and sees this figure half standing behind this six-foot-high and very thick hedge, just this white face staring out, dark suit, and just standing there looking at the two of them. And very, it's just it's just a sublimely unsettling scene. And because the way I see it, Michael is stalking these girls throughout most of the movie. But as the movie goes on, he likes to get closer and closer and closer. And this is the closest he's been to them up, up until this point. And is he waiting to strike or is he just going to stand there menacingly? And at this point, it's just standing there menacingly. And that's OK, because. He just looks so confidently creepy. Yeah, he's just peeking out from a, behind this bush, and he's staring at the girls. And, they, and what's creepy is they have to walk towards him. So it's not like they're, he's behind them. He's just waiting for them on the sidewalk. And it's one of these master class scenes in tension. If you want to see how to direct a tense scene, watch this scene. And, and Lori's like, there's someone behind that bush. And Annie, the brazen one, says, oh, no, there's not. And she walks up, and you think she's going to get slashed. And she, like, grabs the bush, and there's no one there. Michael has skedaddled away or driven away in his car. And, yeah, it's just a wonderful little moment of there's somebody watching these girls, and Lori is the only one who's noticing, and this will become very important, that she's paying attention to what's going on, and the other girls are not. They're distracted. So file that away. Is that the first time you have used the phrase skedaddled in a Staff Picks episode, incidentally? Surprisingly, I think it's probably about the fifth. Ah, well, all right. Uh, The more you know, kids. Exactly. That's a Mario favorite. I like using the word skedaddled. I bet you like all sorts of old-timey prospector talk. I I do. Aw, peaches. That's a very obscure SNL reference. I hope at least one person got that. That's Will Ferrell as the prospector. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Anyway. Yeah, so... Lori goes home, or we find out that Lori can never get a guy, that she's forever trying to get guys. She wants to, you know, be banging away like uh, Annie and Linda, but she can't because guys think she's too smart, so she has a hard time. So, again, we're filing away this, the, the virgin thing. She's not a virgin by choice. She's a virgin because she has not had any luck yet. Yeah, and the guys in this town are terrible. They can't look at Jamie Lee Curtis and see... Jamie Lee Curtis. Nope, she's too smart. Moving along to uh, Linda, I guess. (laughs) You know what's funny is that I I read somewhere that Jamie Lee Curtis in real life was a smart aleck. She, like, smoked and drank. She had a foul mouth. And, like, she was a wild child. And they had had, uh, auditioned these actors for the roles. And she assumed she was going to play Linda or Annie. And so, like, they show up on the first day of shooting. And John Carpenter's like, okay, you're Lori. You're the frumpy one. And she's like, Lori, that's the boring one. Like, I'm nothing like Lori. So Jamie Lee Curtis is playing 100% against type here. Uh, just love her even more. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lori goes home, and she gets ready for the evening, for her babysitting evening. And this is another thing that's weird about this movie, although I, I will uh, asterisk this by saying I had a discussion with someone today who argued with me over this. So... There's a scene in the movie where Lori comes home. It's probably about 2.30 or 3 o'clock on Halloween, and there's kids out trick-or-treating. Yeah. 
that does not ring true to me. In California, I have never, ever in my life seen kids trick-or-treating at three. It's so weird, but I posted that on Facebook today, and I had some East Coast and Chicago people saying that's perfectly natural where they grew up. They always went right after school. So this doesn't ring true to me, but maybe because this is in Illinois, maybe this is actually accurate. I would assume so because it's supposed to be colder there. I mean, we we don't have seasons here. We have summer and less summer. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. But I always thought it's where these kids. She comes home and there's these kids trick or treating, and but I, okay, I'll say a movie location here. Lori's house, a very distinct looking house. It's kind of you see the side of it. It's got this weird entrance into the side right by the garage where the garage would be. And if you've ever visited this filming location in real life, it's literally across the street from what, the Pasadena City Library? The South Pasadena Public Library. Yeah, I spent far too much time there as a kid because, well, I guess people thought I was too smart. <laughs> so we're delving into Matt Carter's sex life here as an adolescent, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, things change. <laughs> so guys no longer think you're too smart. Uh, my wife doesn't think I'm too smart. That's good. <laughs> she knows you well. <laughs> yeah. What I was saying is that it's funny to visit this location. Again, almost every location in this movie looks exactly the same today. But Jamie Lee Curtis's house is right across the street from the Pasadena Library, where there are like hundreds of kids out on the lawn every time I've ever been there. It's like the loudest corner. So it's funny to watch this movie and see how quiet and isolated this house looks when, when they were filming it. There were probably a billion kids off to the right being told to shut up. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. It's a great library. And South Pasadena, incidentally, it's one of my big things. People don't know there is a difference between Pasadena and South Pasadena, but there is. South Pasadena has a bigger stick up its butt. <laughs> That's the official city motto, our stick up our butt is bigger. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, South Pasadena people. I've since moved on, I guess. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Okay, so Lori goes home, and she sees Michael again outside her window staring at her. Again, just looking, just creepy, standing behind her laundry, staring at her. And then she starts getting a prank phone call, which you think is from Michael, but it's really Annie, right? The famous chewing uh, phone call? Yeah, I think this has got to be one of those big references to Black Christmas that they were just messing around with, except they never got around to having Michael making a call. Well, I don't know where he would have learned in the sanitarium, even though he was doing well last night. But maybe somebody gave him phone dialing lessons. Oh, yes. And let him know what who, who important phone numbers and such and things. <laughs> OK, so here we go into the bizarre timeline of this movie, the what time things happen. So it's about three o'clock. Annie calls Laurie and says, I will pick you up tonight for babysitting at 630. In the through the passage of movie magic, we go and it's out 630 and they go outside and now. Lori is sitting on her stoop, right, on the little, little pillars waiting to be picked up. Right, yeah, and she gets picked up. They smoke their weed. They listen to Don't Fear the Reefer because it's a really good song. And we just start driving around for, what, five, six hours at least? <laughs> yes, okay. This is this is the goofiest thing in this movie. They start, they leave about 6.30, and they drive, and within five seconds it goes from broad daylight to pitch dark. Oh, there's a few stops to be made first. There's a few stops to be made first. Okay, let, we'll talk about the stops in a second, but let me just point out, they're only driving like three blocks. They're not going very far because I was figuring this out earlier. At the beginning of the movie, Lori walks from her house to the Myers house. Right. Dr. Loomis later in the movie is at the Myers house waiting. 
Right. At the end of the movie, the kids the kids come running, screaming out of the house with Michael, and Dr. Loomis sees them. So he's about a block away from the babysitting house. Holy crap. Yeah, this is like a little Bermuda Triangle where it takes eight hours to drive three blocks. In their defense, they were really high. <laughs> they drove the long way through, like, Iowa and Michigan to get there. <laughs> they could have driven to California almost. But I'm so happy I blew your mind. I was just noticing that today. These houses are right next to each other. They have to be, or Dr. Loomis wouldn't have seen them. And yeah, that would have also further explained how Tommy met Lori while they were both walking to school. Yeah, they're all very close. So anyway, this passage of time is hilarious. It becomes pitch dark within a three-block hour, a three block drive. But okay, let's talk about some of the stops they make. They, they stop at a famous hardware store in South Pasadena. There was that. Uh, first, though, we had the uh, whole bit of Loomis at the cemetery. <laughs> this this subplot is so stupid. I always hate the subplot, but yeah, it is in here. Okay, <laughs> tell us about it. Oh, no. Well, for one reason or another, Loomis decides before he goes and checks in with the sheriff that he's going to check at the Haddonfield Cemetery on the off chance that Michael might have done something with his sister's tombstone. And you may not be a fan of this scene. I absolutely love this scene, if only for the caretaker of the cemetery, this old guy who talks about, yep, I think every small town has its own little story. Well, I remember one way back down the road the ways about the husband who uh, went, you know, he kissed his wife and children, went into the garage, took a hacksaw, and then he proceeded to. <laughs> Loomis cuts him off at that point, but I kind of want to hear the end of that story. Does that guy run the old country store in, like, Oklahoma or something? Right out of Andy Andy Griffith's show right there, that guy. <laughs> yeah, he, he the scene is random, but it ultimately reveals that Loomis, for one reason or another, was right that Michael would steal Judith's headstone. <laughs> now, how did that come up in counseling? Now, I'm wondering, how does he know in his 15 years that this kid's first move is, I'm going to go to the cemetery and steal my sister's headstone? Now, B, to follow up on that, how the fuck did he lift a headstone? There's no way anybody could lift a giant headstone by themselves, yet this guy who has never worked out in his life, he's been sitting in a corner for 15 years. I don't know, I'm, I'm surprisingly pointing out some plot holes here, but I always wonder, how did this come up in counseling that he knows this is Michael's first move? I don't know. I mean, he does show superhuman strength later, so I, I cut a little leeway in there, and maybe that ex also explains why he stole the rope. <laughs> yes. But he does say another Sam Loomis catchphrase, he came home. He came home. Yeah. And yeah, then we at this point, yeah, we do get to the hardware store in South Pasadena, a place where actually right across the street from where the Meyer house, Myers house actually is now, since that got moved sometime after the 70s. It's now at the Myers house is now a chiropractor's office right next to a gold line station. Yeah, that's that's funny. I got to get into that for people who don't know that the Myers house in the real life was a decrepit old house they bought for the movie and they decorated it all up for the 1960s scene and then they let it fall into disrepair at the end and it, it, they were going to tear it down, I think, if I recall. But someone said, no, this is a historical landmark. We can't tear this house down. So you said, so was it sometime in the 90s, 80s or 90s, they just physically moved the house? Okay, from the story I understand, that's a bit of an urban legend as described that way. It was that they were going to destroy a whole row of houses there, and one at random was picked, basically, for survival, and it just happened to be the Myers house. 
So that that that, that, that it still exists is just crazy happenstance, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, but it's not in the same place. That's for if you're a tourist and going to South Pasadena, want to see these locations. The Myers house is not where it was in the movie. They moved it like six houses down, and so now it faces the uh, the hardware store in the movie. They they both look the same, but they're in different places. Yeah, and despite this scene handling its time badly, there are a couple of really great things because they suddenly get to this hardware store and there's an alarm going on. And we meet Annie's dad, uh, who is, happens to be the town sheriff, who explains, oh, yeah, this alarm is probably just some kids. Uh, why do you think they're kids? Well, all they stole was a knife, a mask, and some rope. Is that not a little bit alarming to anyone? <laughs> and I was like, I'm just expecting him to say next, okay, he also bought a, ha- a map to people's houses, would put a whole bunch of X's on it. He also stole some wire cutters and a book on how to disable phones and locks. <laughs> Probably kids. Yeah, just some kids. He, he rented a uh, U-Haul truck, filled it with ammonium nitrate. He's going <laughs> to – it's just kids. I don't know what they're doing. But, okay, another loophole I got to point out here is that – they he get they get there they're driving by and the alarm is going off on this store so theoretically the store has just been broken into correct correct even though Michael has his mask very early on meaning he should be going for what ten hours that the store's alarm was going <laughs> this is like the fucking Energizer Bunny of alarms it's been going on for half a day and what else was the sheriff occupied by in this? T- there's, there's so much crime going on in this town in Haddonfield that the sh- sheriff was occupied. Yeah. So Michael stole, broke in and stole this map. I mean, I've, I'm assuming it's Michael. Maybe it really was kids, but I'm assuming Michael broke in and this alarm's been going off for like nine hours. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. and But yeah, the main point is he stole some knives, a mask and some rope. And, you know, you got a an alarm going off in your head. That's a pretty good place to for it to go. Yeah, but Lori, yeah, Lori and Annie have been smoking weed in the car, listening to some Blue Oyster Cult, and stumble across Annie's dad. And for some reason, they decide to stop, even though the car's probably got a reek of weed. <laughs> yeah, well, this to me, this is one of the more underrated subplots in this movie. That Annie's father is the sheriff, and she's going to die. So when the sheriff comes and discovers the body later at the movie, and at the end of the movie. It's going to be the sheriff discovering his own daughter dead. And again, oh, we do see that in Halloween, too. But it's kind of one of the underrated things in one that, oh, yeah, that's the sheriff's daughter. He's going to find her body. So just file that away. Yeah, that's, that's again, one of the places where they actually can pull a fair bit of pathos. That is actually really sad when you think about it. <laughs> this movie's kind of a downer, Matt. It's not always happy. It's not always sunshine and roses. Well, not for a while, anyway. <laughs> Not until we get to Bob. Yeah, okay. So here we go. Let's get to the sex stuff here. So so Annie and Lori are driving to babysitting, and they talk about the boys that they like. And this is where we learn about the mythical Ben Tramer, who's apparently the cute boy in school who Lori has the hots for, but he doesn't know that she exists. And we will hear Ben Tramer's name will come up a lot in this movie. I forgot what a major character he is in the storyline. Yeah, and he's he, he's 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 the guy who never comes. He he's Godot in this movie. <laughs> yes, as as Halloween is compared to waiting for Godot, that 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 is the perfect analogy. Thank you. So Ben Tramer is this mythical guy that Laurie has a crush on, and a large part of the action later in the movie will depend on her 
him finding out that she likes him. And then in one of the greatest twists in movie history, and again, I hate to bring in sequels to the movie because they have nothing to do with this one. What happens to the notorious Ben Tramer in Halloween 2, Matt? He dies in the goofiest damn scene in movie history because he's out wandering, happening to wear the exact same thing that Michael Myers is wearing. Loomis is going after him, nearly shoots this random kid. And then as he's just crossing the street, a random police car just flies into him, smashes him into another car, and then it all explodes. And this the police officer isn't even aiming for him or anything. It's just this scene that comes out of nowhere and happens and we don't even find out it's Ben Tramer until like an hour later into the movie. Well, Matt, you know what they say, speed kills. Speed kills. And that they, they illustrate that well. Yeah. So, and I just wanted to point out that it has nothing to do with this movie, but Ben Tramer, the mythical boyfriend of Lori goes out like a little bitch in Halloween too. He gets pancaked by a ambulance and they don't even know it's him until later in the movie. So, as if Lori's night in this movie is not bad enough, all her friends are going to be killed. She will nearly be killed. She will suffer this horrendous attack from this serial killer. Her boyfriend is also pancaked by an ambulance five minutes after this movie ends. Well, he didn't at least he probably at least didn't die on Halloween. Yeah, that one wasn't Michael's fault, so <laughs> that's just shitty luck. Yeah, so the legend of Ben Tramer, one of my favorite things about the Halloween movies. Pour one out for Ben Tramer, folks. Okay, so here we go. So the girls are driving to their babysitting uh, assignments three blocks away, and now it's pitch dark. So now it's like 9 o'clock. I'm not entirely sure. But the sun goes down, like, real fast in this town. So anyway, the girls get to their houses across the street from each other, and Michael follows them. Michael's been following them all along. And this is the key part of the movie I like to point out, that if Lori were his sister, he would be going after Lori, but he's not. He gets there and immediately decides, Annie is way hotter. I'm going after Annie. So he pushes Lori aside and he goes after the other one. So to just to dispel any notion that he had this big grand plan of going after his sister, Annie will be his, his tar target for the next hour and a half or so. Exactly. Yeah. Lori is incidental, really, in that scenario. Uh, she's just the last one remaining, and he makes a little bit of a spectacle out of it. You know why? You know why he's not really into her? I think it's because he thinks she's too smart. I would imagine so, yeah. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michael's evil powers, he knows these things. Okay, but in, yeah, in this same period, we also have Dr. Loomis uh, staking out the Myers house under the belief that Michael's going to come back, which is where we start getting some of his one of his better speeches. After, of course, he finds a, a mutilated dog. And what, 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 what's, what is his line upon finding this mutilated dog on the ground? He got hungry. He got hungry. Yeah. Okay, uh, let me throw something in here. I have long had a theory, and I've mentioned it on Staff Picks before, that the really hardcore horror movies have the balls to kill a dog in a movie. And I've always joked about this, that most horror movies won't do that. They'll threaten that a little dog is going to die, and then they'll yank him away from danger at the end because the audience can't handle it. Halloween does not do that. Halloween not only kills one dog, they kill two dogs. So I just wanted to point that out, yep. that this is the rare double dog killing. So, you know, tip my cap to John Carpenter. He, he proves my rule here. Hardcore horror movies will not spare the dog. I have my own theory on that one as to why he did that. Don't quote me 100%. I think he did that one as, a, as an homage to Jaws, thinking, like, if Jaws is so hardcore and they kill a dog, I'm going to kill a dog, too. 
Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't dispute that because Jaws is the other movie where I know they kill a dog. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of homages being thrown around, and this is where uh, <laughs> we don't see the dead dog. We just see that there is a dog in the Myers house somebody has been chewing on, and the sheriff is like, a man wouldn't do that. And Dr. Loomis says, this isn't a man. <laughs> and, yeah, as we take our tour of the house, we get another cheap jump scare, this time in the way of a falling rain gutter smashing a window. And we get one of the first great Loomis speeches that I, I'm assuming it's, you've written this one down word for word, too. <laughs> I have, but I'm going to give you the honor of giving the great Dr. Sam Loomis monologue that acting students have used for years as auditions at the great schools of like Juilliard. So here we go. Take it away. Give us our, our monologue, Matt. <clears throat> I met him 15 years ago. I was told there's nothing left, no reason, no conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with the blank, pale, emotionless face, with the bl blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up, because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil that is an amazing doctor right there <laughs> and i should point out for aspiring high school students that is a wonderful yearbook quote that entire speech <laughs> oh man I, I just went with the rolling stones <laughs> yeah so he reels off this wonderful dialogue and again i we make fun of donald pleasance but he really sells that speech i love the way he delivers that speech I'm, i think a lesser actor would not have torn into it with as much gusto i think would be the right way of saying it i would i would agree with that i mean that one yeah i i say it in the cheesiest way possible but i would put that one up there with quinn's indianapolis speech and jaws hands down you know what would be funny it would be to take that speech and run it through like a voice synthesizer through like your computer just to see how horrible that speech would sound without an actor reading it in fact, I may do that as the stinger for this movie. Maybe I'll do a voice synthesizer or I'll put like a, on my iPhone the voice synthesizer and I'll, I'll see if I can get it to say that. That would be so great. At least part, a good part of it. That would be amazing. It would probably how Michael would sound if he could talk. So the doctor's strategy tonight is this guy's going to come home. I will wait here at his house with this half-eaten dog and I will assume he will be back here at some point. And what's funny is the strategy actually pays off. I'm surprised, but it works. Yeah, Loomis, credit to him. He apparently knows Michael. Who knew? <laughs> and I love the the cop is like, we should tell people. We should warn people. And he's like, no, I am Dr. Loomis. Do not warn anybody. <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he's a good doctor, but he's a shitty cop. <laughs> he does have a big gun, though. That's going to come in handy later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is our setup for the last hour of the movie. Dr. Loomis is staking out at the Myers house, and we go over to, really the rest of the movie is Annie and Lori babysitting across the street, a.k.a. three doors down from each other. Yeah. And so what's going on here? There's like a horror marathon going on, right? Oh, yeah, there's a Dr. Dementia, I want to say it is, they, is their local horror guru. Um, yeah, they're watching at first The Thing, I think they do later, Forbidden Planet, and... Yeah, basically they're watching this shockingly long horror movie marathon at already, as you say, 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> well, there's one part where they're watching the start of the movie, The Thing, and then a couple things happen, and then it's the end of the movie, The Thing. So it's like, I don't know how, how time works here. The movie's like 12 minutes long. 
Yeah, that's actually about as long as Halloween was when they were watching it in Scream. <laughs> Another one of those great homages. What can I say? Okay, so a big chunk of the next part of the movie is Lori and Annie talking on the phone to each other about life and school and Ben Tramer. And like you said, uh, 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 what's her name? Uh, Deborah Hill wrote all this dialogue. And again, this scene does not work if it doesn't sound like realistic dialogue. So I will 100% back up your stance that Deborah Hill is why this part of the movie works. Yeah, totally. Totally. So let's see. We find out here the little kid, Tommy Doyle, is scared of the boogeyman because the kids at school have been taunting him. And all throughout this evening, you know, Lori's carving a pumpkin. The kids are watching movie marathons. And Tommy keeps peeking out. And what does he see outside, Matt? He sees the shape. Just this dark figure standing out in front of the Wallace house, you know, three doors down slash across the street. And it's the boogeyman is here. The boogeyman. What does he look like, Tommy? The boogeyman? It's a silly line, but it's actually really great. The kid sells his fear so well. Did Did you ever hear the trivia about the little girl in this movie? Uh, I think Kyle Richards is her name. Right, yeah, that she was scarred for life from this movie. <laughs> because nobody told her this was a horror movie. Which I love. They they had her in that. You're, okay, you're watching TV, and you're talking to this kid, and you're talking to the babysitter. And that's about all she does in the movie. She didn't know she was in this slasher movie called Halloween until she saw it in the theater, and it scarred her for life. So they, yeah, this is this is why they would later have advocates on movie sets for children, to let them know you're in a horror movie. Except if you were on the set of The Shining. But that one's a whole nother horror story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so... Michael spends most of the evening staring at Annie. He's just outside her kitchen looking at her, watching her talk on the phone. And at one point she like spills popcorn butter all over herself. And, uh, but it's, it's basically him looking at Annie and Tommy across the street, looking out his window and seeing Michael. Right. Yeah. And Tom and Michael is just standing there staring, looking through the window, watching Annie. He's, as I say, the more he stalks, the closer and closer he gets. I mean, he is almost close enough to touch her at this point, but he won't. He has to wait for whatever signal he gets to set him off. Some, uh, what is the exact phrase that Dr. Loomis has used? Some deep, dark, silent alarm or something? Uh, yeah, so for some secret silent alarm to trigger him off. <laughs> okay, so this is where there's the dog at the Wallace house, and it barks at Michael, and Michael kills it. So that's dog kill number two. And this mm -hmm. is, again, there's just a, a big, long stretch of movie of Michael just stalking and watching. And you know something's coming, but it never comes. And that's why I always love the restraint that John Carpenter shows, that the body count is so low in this movie because Michael doesn't actually act. He's just looking. Yeah, I mean, you can count on one hand, depending on the number of fingers you have, how many people die in this movie. Yep, and uh, we're going to get the first one here in a minute, but first we get a whole little dynamic with the little boy that Lori's babysitting. He's like, the boogeyman's outside, I'm scared, and she can't see him, and, and she's like, I make a promise, I will protect you from the boogeyman, nothing can happen to you tonight. So he's like, okay, so this becomes her impetus, of course, not, not so much that she's a virgin, more that she has made a promise to protect a child. Yeah, she is a good babysitter. Lori is the one you want to hire. Except she is stoned. Yeah, she is pretty white. She is a little high, but she gets over it pretty quickly. The power of knitting. <laughs> yes. Okay, so there's a long extended scene where Annie is getting stalked and Michael's outside the window and you keep, she just walks by and you see him kind of obliquely behind her. It's just a great little tension scene. And then at one point she has to go out to the laundry room to, 
Yeah, her shirt, she has spilled butter on it. I've never spilled that much butter on my shirt, but she spills gallons and gallons of butter, apparently, where she needs to replace her entire outfit. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, credit to this movie. If this was done later in the 80s, you would have seen all through that shirt, and they would have left it that way for the rest of the movie. This is actually pretty tastefully done for its time. That's true. There is actually, I mean, there is nudity, just not Annie. We see other nudity in the movie. We'll see lots of Linda later. Not as much as you'd expect, but yes, we will see Linda later, and PJ Souls was definitely, she was cute, and she was a great actress, so I'm not complaining too much, and my wife is in the room too, and she's not killing me, so this is uh, something good. Good. So I can make the joke that it was very cold on the set, apparently, that day. Probably. (laughs) Okay. So so anyway, so uh, Annie goes back in the house, and she gets a call that her boyfriend, Paul, has snuck out, and he wants to come over and have sex with her, and as any responsible babysitter would do, she says, let me dump off the kid I'm babysitting on Jamie Lee Curtis, and I'll go drive over and get Paul. So this is Annie is about to meet her death here, but the takeaway is that Lori ends up with both kids this way. Yeah, which is probably works out for the best for the kids in question, since they don't have to deal with Michael until much later. I mean, both the kids do survive, so this, in the long run, this was the good move. And they survived Bob also. Yeah, uh, I guess we're getting to Bob, aren't we? <laughs> we're getting close. Yeah, very close to Bob. Can you tell that Mario and I find Bob one of the most... Horribly funny characters in this whole movie. There's a line coming up that is one of the most... I don't even know how to describe this line. It comes out of nowhere. And I I showed it to my wife tonight, and she'd never noticed this line before. She's like, why the hell is that line in the movie? So we'll get to that in a second. So anyway, yeah, Annie has ditched the kids off with Jamie Lee Curtis, and she goes to drive to get Paul. And again, she gets killed here, but it does take a while. John Carpenter shows a lot of restraint. There's a couple of false alarms, false starts, until Michael finally sneaks up behind her in the car. And I got to say, for a movie that's not very graphic, her death scene is actually very prolonged. Yeah, she he chokes her for a very good long while before very bloodlessly slitting her throat with a knife. Yeah, it's funny, on my old VHS tape, I could never tell that he slits her throat with a knife. It's kind of blurry. It happens very quickly. But he does, right, yeah, he yeah. moves up and you don't see it, but he actually does cut her throat. So there is a knife, some knife action here. I don't go back to the criticizing. I don't think the actress for Annie is the strongest actor in the movie, and the face she makes while dying is uh, not a good face. <laughs> There's at least four times during her death scene where she looks right at the camera, too. Yes, and just goes, it's full derp. I mean, she was great in a lot of the other parts of the movie, but that is, there are more glamorous death scenes you can have, like Bob. <laughs> okay, we're almost up to Bob. Okay, so we've lost Annie, we lost, we lost one of the babysitters, we lost the main babysitter, I should point out. Now there's only, you know, uh, <laughs> what's the collateral babysitters left? And so this is where there's a great scene where the two kids are watching TV in in Lori's house. And one of them, Tommy, sneaks up, sneaks over by the curtain. He's going to scare the girl. And he starts to whisper her name. And he looks around and he sees Michael Myers outside carrying Annie's dead body. And he screams and everyone screams. And there's "Ah, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, more boogeyman talk. And, of course, Lori still has not seen the boogeyman, but she is paying attention. She knows something goofy's going on. Yeah. And she's, you know skeptical of the kids, but it's kind of hard not to let this get to you after a bit of time. I mean, if you have a kid, tell, if you have a kid telling you the boogeyman is outside, it's hard not to get a little uh, skeptical after a moment or two. Yeah. 
maybe that's what Michael Myers was doing for seven years, and then Loomis just stopped paying attention to him for the next eight. He's like, all right, Boogeyman, I got it. Well, he did was sit and stare, but I guess you can sense Boogeyman got it. That's the diagnosis for this kid. Oh, 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 on my TV edit, my VHS that has extra scenes, there's a scene that you don't have in your version. It's in the TV version only, but it was in my version where Michael is sitting there staring at a wall. He's like 12 or 13. He's older. And, my, and Dr. Loomis walks in and says, nobody else knows who you are, but I know what you are. I know you're just waiting. And he's just sitting there and the kid's just glaring at the wall. So you actually see him looking at the wall in this deleted scene. Okay, that's actually not a bad one. Here we go with the scene that I know you will have a lot to say about. This is Dr. Loomis waiting at the house for Michael Myers. And the, the, the three naughty little kids, the bullies in town, come up to the house because they dare each other to walk in there. And we're going to see the whimsical side of Dr. Loomis here. Yes, yeah. We get to see Lonnie. The, the, these are the kids who were harassing Tommy earlier. And they wind up convincing Lonnie, the little douchebag, to go up to the house and, you know, go inside. And from the from the bushes... We got this older man lurking in the bushes watching young boys, and you just have to phrase it like that as he eyes them and says, Hey, Lonnie, get your ass out of there. Yes. And these kids all just freak out and run away, and he just gets this – Dr. Loomis gets this cute smile on his face like, I scared some children tonight. Yes, he's, he's he's out there supposed to be looking for the most horrible murderer of all time, yet he takes a little time out of his busy evening to perform a prank on some local street urchins. Yeah, well, Lonnie had it coming, at least. Yeah, so, so the sheriff shows up here, and he says, you know, there's no Michael Myers tonight. I think you're making it up. And now the doctor snaps right back into crazed doctor mode. And now... He gives his second of his two monologues, and once again, I will yep. turn it over to the great Matthew Winston Carter. I believe that was what you said, your middle name. Wayne, whatever. Wayland. Wayland. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and you will deliver the second of Dr. Loomis's fine monologue, so I turn it over to you. I love that you know, by the way, that this is the second one that I wrote down. I watched him for 15 years. Sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall, looking past the wall, looking at this night, inhumanly patient, waiting for some secret silent alarm to trigger him off. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You can ignore it, or you can help me to stop it. Once again... Doctor of the Year. Well done. This is where we throw roses at you. Well done. And the, the sheriff, of course, has a clever retort for one of the greatest monologues in movie history. The sheriff says, more fancy talk. <laughs> I keep forgetting that line. There's a lot, there's a lot to love here. but yeah. This implies that Dr. Loomis has been talking fancy talk all night, and we just only caught two of the monologues. That's one of those great moments of, speak English, doctor. We ain't no scientists. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, so this is the last we'll see of Dr. Loomis for a while, because now we're going to meet Linda and Bob, and and they have, they have arrived. This is Linda, the, uh, I'm not going to say slutty, the more popular of the three girls, and she's there with her boyfriend, Bob, and they're drunk, and they're planning to go at it in the Wallace sex house which is apparently their plan for the evening. And this is where we get the line that's one of the creepiest lines in movie history, and I don't know if it's intended to be creepy or if the actor just blew the reading and said the wrong name, 
But why don't you set this one up for people, Matt? I'll, I'll give you the honor of saying the pedo joke. Oh, well, no, I, I didn't write this one down word for word, and I got the last speech, so you can have this one. <laughs> oh, sure, give me the pedo joke. Okay. <laughs> so so Bob and Linda arrive, and they're at the, the house of the little girl, Lindsay, and they're talking about what sex antics they're going to take part in, and Bob says, first, I'll rip your clothes off, then you rip my clothes off, and then we rip Lindsay's clothes off. <laughs> Lindsay, the 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Lindsay the tenure. So he is implying that in their sexual fantasies for the evening will involve a ten-year-old having her clothes torn off. And yeah, uh, and Linda does not respond to this in the slightest either. And my personal theory: this line is terrible and hilariously terrible. I'm pretty sure he was supposed to say Annie, like he was trying to imply a three-way, but uh, the actor just got the wrong name. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, let he cast the first tone who has not accidentally mentioned the name of an eight-year-old during his sex fantasy. <laughs> but I agree with you. That I've always thought that he's supposed to say Annie, and he just says the wrong name. And Carpenter left that in, and, well, we got movie magic. <laughs> yeah. Although, that's not the goofiest scene. I also love, they get out of their car, and they're going to go have sex in the Wallace house, and Bob does not close his car door. I always <laughs> love this. He leaves it wide open. <laughs> I guess Haddonfield's the kind of town you leave your doors unlocked and sometimes open. Yeah, so they get in the house. They go in the house where Annie has been killed earlier. And Linda, this again, the so many wonderful quotes in this that people use as their Shakespearean auditions, where Linda says, hey, it's totally dark. <laughs> God, I I love PJ Souls in this movie. She She really commits to this ditzy airhead part so well. Yeah, she decides that the word totally is going to be her thing. And by gum, she's going to say totally as many times as she can in this movie. Yeah, they're in the sex house. They find it's dark and they're, they're holding off from sex until they hear they get the go ahead. Yeah, they, they find out that Annie has left to go pick up Paul. She's not there. They have the house to themselves. So they do it on the couch and then they go upstairs and they do it in the bed. With choreography that Tommy Wiseau would have been proud of. We see a lot of Bob's ass. We see a lot of his ass as he's hitting somewhere along the right side of her pelvis, I think. <laughs> you totally missed. <laughs> yeah, instead she goes, ah, oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> I was at, a, re I was at a, a screening of this at an actual theater with people recently that was fun, and I may have said a little too loud after she's trying to prove that this was the greatest sex she ever had, I just said, sure. <laughs> just this brief ripple of laughs you could hear going out about 20 feet in every direction. <laughs> I also love, I have to point out the goofiness of the scene, that they're going at it in the Wallace house in the master bedroom with a lit jack-o'-lantern five feet away from there on the table. Who lit a jack-o'-lantern up in this unused bedroom on Halloween? Why is it sitting there? Oh, on top of all that, they're actually taking beer from the Wallace's fridge. <laughs> These guys are jerks. Yeah, they're making Annie look like the best babysitter ever. It turns out this pedophile is a creep. No, who knew? Yeah, so uh, they, uh, another good thing is they're, they're going at it. Bob and Linda are going at it on the bed, and the phone keeps ringing in the background. And for some reason, Bob has a mental block. He cannot perform sex if the phone is ringing. It's like this weirdest thing. 
It's the 70s. What can you say? So he takes the phone off the hook, and it goes, this will be important because Lori can't reach them later, and they, they do it, and we see a lot of PJ Souls topless. And now we get the uh, – this is the death scene, right? Yeah, we get to actually a very, very creepy scene of Bob goes down to the kitchen to get more beer because they need to steal beer from the walls and make Annie get fi- and get Annie fired. Um, and Bob hears a strange sound in what he thinks is a closet, and as he's about to get the beer, thinks uh, Linda or Annie is pulling a joke on him, checks one closet, he checks one closet, doesn't hear it, see anything, then checks another closet, oh, ha, ha, and Michael Myers is right in there, and just, we've seen him as this slow-moving figure, and suddenly he is just charging at Bob grabs him by the throat and lifts him up against a door single-handedly as we start to get to a real grasp on what Michael is capable of. And Bob is not a small guy. I mean, yeah, he's got the 70s golden curls and the big glasses, but he is not a small guy, and that Michael can easily lift him is impressive. And then after a moment, Michael just pulls out a big knife impales Bob right to the door and gets one of the creepiest images that I will pass off to you because I know you love this one. This is the famous Michael Myers head tilt, correct? Yes. Yeah, this is something that Jason Voorhees would later do, but Michael, I believe, does it first where he impales Bob against the wall, gives him the old Jesus of Nazareth treatment. That's a horrible joke. I'm going to leave that in there. But uh, and then <laughs> he just stands back and he admires his work. He kind of tilts his head. He's like, wow, look what I did. And I should point out there's a meme going around Facebook that said Michael Myers was posting things to walls before it was cool. (laughs) Michael Myers is a hipster. Who knew? Yeah. So Bob is stabbed and left against the wall. Now, the physics of this don't make sense whatsoever. There's no way that little flimsy knife could go all the way through him and hold him against the wall. But I will give it a pass on this one. Because it's such it is such an amazing image where he's just. He's looking at this kill and taking his time because he's he's not in a hurry. He's like, you know, somebody look, taking a good look at a piece of art that they made or, you know, an insect that they pinned to a collection. Bob died for our sins, Matt. Bob died for our sins, but maybe it's a good thing Bob died if he didn't mess up that line. <laughs> That's true. Maybe, I mean, maybe God, maybe Michael's doing the Lord's work here. There's a little frailty going on here. But uh, so we lost Bob and now we're going to lose Linda. Now, unfortunately, PJ Souls does not have a lot of camera time. She's about to get totally killed here. Uh, totally. Yeah. So yeah, this, this is always a creepy little image where, or explain this one to people with the ghost sheet. Yes, because a thing we haven't been making enough fun of is the fact that Bob has these gigantic 70s glasses that take up almost half his face. And we know Bob is dead at this point. Linda doesn't. And when the door to the bedroom opens while she's doing her nails, all she sees is this sheet ghost with a couple of little holes cut in it and Bob's glasses over the head. So she thinks this is Bob coming in here and she's asking, you know, a lot of, you know, first showing off her breasts and then asking, well, where's my beer? This is totally not cool. (laughs) It's about to get totally more not cool, too. Where, yeah, Bob, where Michael is under the sheet and, and he doesn't respond. So she's like, well, I'm going to go call Lori and find out where Annie is. And PJ Souls picks up the phone. And again, for a movie that's not very violent or graphic, another surprisingly protracted death strangling scene 
where Michael walks up and strangles PJ Souls to death with the phone cord as she's topless, while Aunt Lori's on the other end listening to the phone call, thinking it's a prank call. Yeah, because she, you know, after Annie called her while eating earlier, she thinks, oh, ha ha, now one of your famous moaning calls. And then hangs up on her while, yeah. Well, no, she doesn't hang up on Annie just yet. We get the other creepy image coming up. Yeah, this is where, where, where Lori's talking on the phone. Annie, uh, Linda has been killed. Lori is talking on the phone, and Michael Myers picks up the phone and listens on the other end. And it's like the first direct point of contact he has had with this girl, who we will find out later is supposed to be his sister. But no, he's now discovering, hey, there's this Lori girl. Yeah. Who, is, who isn't his sister, incidentally? Laura is not his sister. Yes. Lori or Laura, neither one of them is his sister. So here we go. We're at the end of the movie here. All the two of the babysitters are dead. I, I guess it's a stretch calling Linda a babysitter. But two of the girls are dead and Bob, the pedo. And now it's just Lori. And now at this point, all everything's going to come to a head where we get Dr. Loomis. And I love this is the most underrated funny scene in the movie, Matt, where Dr. Loomis is looking around. He's at the Myers house, and he suddenly sees the car from the sanitarium that Michael stole back in the first reel. Yeah, he's been sitting outside this house for, what, about four or five, ten hours at this point, and he just notices the car is across the street from him. Yeah, he's a bad doctor, but he's a worse detective because this car has been a block away from him the entire night, and he just now notices it. Well, he does have a trench coat and a gun, so he's, he's an okay detective. Yeah, but this is, again, where I, I make the connection. Where are these houses located in relation to each other? they got to be right next to each other, so it makes the driving scene goofy. But, yeah, it's okay, so here we go to the end of the movie, and it's like there's 30 minutes left, and it's all tension and music and suspense from here on out. And, again, anything that we have been making fun of about this movie or mocking all goes away now because everything from here on out is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're in the pure horror section at this point. Lori versus Michael, showdown of the decade. And it is horror at its finest. Yeah, and it's surprisingly, again, restrained. John Carpenter will not let you off the hook with a quick jump scare or a quick attack. He's going to draw it out for a good 10 minutes of Lori slowly walking over to the Wallace house and seeing that it's dark and looking around and trying to figure out what's going on. And again, the Halloween music is going insane here. It's just relentless for the last 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, because Lori, she's a little upset with what's going on. She puts the kids to sleep, and she wants to go over to the Wallace house just to make sure that her friends are okay. And yeah, as you say, she sees the house is dark. She thinks that they might be pulling a prank on her because obviously they're the kinds of friends who pull pranks on you. So she goes upstairs, and what does she see? As Dr. Loomis would say, he got artistic. He did? <laughs> yeah, so she goes up, and he, she goes up to the master bedroom, and she sees there's a light on, and she opens the door, and Jamie Lee Curtis sees her friend Annie dead on the bed, not, not quite spread eagle, but spread out with her arms akimbo, you know, the one who's been spread, strangled in the car. The... 8,000-pound headstone of Judith Myers placed above her. I don't know how Michael got it up the stairs, but he did. But it's like he's recreated the death scene of his sister. So once again, if he was recreating the death scene of his sister, you'd think he would kill Lori being his sister. But no, she's not his sister. Annie represents his sister. Yep, because Lori isn't his sister. I'm just going to repeat this as many times as we need to. Yeah, so... Jamie Lee Curtis sees the uh, death scene, the spectacle of Annie laying there dead on the bed, and she freaks out, and she backs up, 
And this is where we get one of my favorite John Carpenter tropes where Jamie Lee Curtis will repeatedly back up right next to a dark closet. Yes, yeah, where she first sees the body of Bob hanging from the ceiling with a knife still in his chest. Then she backs into another closet and the door pops open and there we have Linda all strangled and goofy looking, but strangled and very dead. See, she sees in a course of 30 seconds, three of her friends all have, have been murdered. Now, was she that close to Bob? Come on. I hope not for her sake. <laughs> I mean, imagine if Ben Tramer had been in there, it would have been even more horrifying. Yeah, he was on too, too busy being on fire. <laughs> not yet. No spoilers. He's still perfectly alive at this point, I think. Yeah, but we then get one of the greatest shots in the whole movie where she backs out into the hallway and she's near this open doorway that, as far as we see, is black. But then Michael slowly fades into existence like we, the audience, our eyes are getting used to the dark. And we see him just materialize behind her, this ghostly figure. And this is when things uh, take it up a notch. Yeah, you said this is one of the greatest scenes in the movie. I would say this is one of the greatest moments in any horror movie ever. This little... Oh, great. I love it. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis backs up against the wall, and there's a dark closet next to her. And somehow, through lighting and fade, you know, uh, dimmer switch... They make Michael Myers' white face appear in that black hallway, but very, very gradually, so he's just right next to her. It's so effective, and again, it's I cannot believe a movie with this low a budget pulled off an effect that creepy, but they did. And that, to me, that's the signature shot of this movie right there. Oh, entire, totally. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it does get... Uh, another person I want to give some credit to is the cinematographer, Dean Cundy. He was he later became a big deal. I think he did a lot of Spielberg's and Zemeckis' movies. So got a good start here with Halloween. Yeah, again, there's a lot of technical skill going on in this movie, and you see it here at the end. The end is fantastic. And Michael Myers pops out of the closet, and he doesn't really – they don't do a cheap jump scare here, which I always appreciate. It's a very gradual thing of him just slowly appearing and her not knowing he's there. And he comes after her, and – you know, for a guy who's really good at stabbing stuff and killing stuff, I don't know how he misses a straight-on backstab from two feet away, but he does. Yeah, he just gets her in the arm and sends Laurie tumbling over the stairwell railing. Yeah, and from here on out, it's all attack and tension for the rest of the movie. As Laurie falls down the stairs, Michael starts coming down the stairs after her, and she runs out, and again, the <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing the music in my head. I can't possibly do it justice. The dunt, dunt, dunt. Yeah, so she's running. And this is where we meet, I love to call them the dick neighbors of the year. Well, yeah, we first have to go through the whole kitchen bit. He breaks through the door. Here's Johnny before. Here's Johnny. She has to knock that rake aside. And then, yeah, we got the dick neighbors of the year. this screaming girl tripping and falling from her leg injury. And that's another one, actually, a trope that this movie did that a lot of people copied. Lori falls down a lot. I hear a lot of people give her shit, but nobody seems to remember that she just fell down a stairway and is pretty badly hurt. Yeah, yeah, there's there's reasons for her to be clumsy, but I want to go back to the dick neighbors just because I love these people. That Lori, lit oh, yeah, of liter Lori literally runs up to her neighbor's house, and she's bloody, and she's been attacked, and she's pounding on the door, help me, help me, help me, and the neighbor looks out the window and then decides, nah, and turns off the lights and they go back to bed. <laughs> Yeah, Halloween prank, obviously, but that just it, it it makes it 
all the scarier for Lori that we, we slowly realize she's in a position where she can't really get help without people think she's just making a bad joke. Like she thought, of, you know, all of her friends were making a bad joke, not moments before. You know, the neighbors, they just think she's too smart. Clearly. <laughs> so here we go. This is a, again, I keep using this word masterclass, a masterclass in tension with Jamie Lee Curtis running back to her house, but she has no key. She has locked the door shut so the kids would be safe. And Michael Myers is slowly ambling across the street over her to, over to stab her. And she's pounding on the door, waiting for little Tommy to wake up and come let her into the house. And this scene is almost excruciating if you don't like tension. It's just waiting for him to catch up to her and her pounding on the door. And this, I love this scene. Yeah, I mean, because he's getting it's closer and closer and closer. And, you know, she can't wake Tommy until she hucks a potted plant up to his window. And you just get this tired kid. What are you doing down there, Lori? <laughs> Tommy, open the door. Okay. Yeah, and I, again, I have to say, I don't like mentioning sequels, but there's a scene in Halloween 2 where they recreate this, where she's in an elevator, and Michael's trying to get her through the elevator. I love that. It's very similar to this scene. I just wanted to point that out. I don't remember it, so cool. <laughs> okay, so she gets in the Doyle house, Tommy lets her in, and then she finds out that there's a window that's been open, and Michael somehow gets into the Doyle house behind her. And they're very, like, almost every scene from here on out is iconic horror, where Michael pops up behind the couch, and she, like, stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle, which is an interesting way to do it. Well, she had a bag of knitting supplies early in the movie, so we see that her preparedness actually saved her butt in this exact moment, as Michael, though, once again misses a point-blank knife stab. <laughs> yes, he's surprisingly a very bad shot once it comes to it, but, uh, yeah, he got knitted, basically, here. <laughs> Yeah, he went to the Imperial Stormtrooper Academy of Aiming. <laughs> so, yeah, so she stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle, and she takes the knife. Or does she drop the knife or take the knife? I and mean, there's a lot of controversy why. She she picks up the knife, but then she sees that he's knocked out, and she thinks he's dead because she stabbed him in the neck. He should be dead. So, yeah, she does drop that knife. Okay. So she can go upstairs and tell the kids that the boogeyman is dead. Yeah, and this is another great scene. Again, there's about 10 great scenes all in a row right here at the end where she goes up and tells the kids, she's like, you know, it was the boogeyman. The boogeyman was here and he attacked me. And Tommy's freaking out. And she's like, no, but it's okay. I killed him. And Tommy's like, you can't kill the boogeyman. And then all of a sudden the reveal that Michael's right behind her. That's a great reveal. Oh, God, yes. And kids screaming. She, again, does the responsible thing, sends them to a bedroom, tells them to lock themselves in. And she even tries to be smart in the next bit. She tries to make it look like she jumps out of a nearby bedroom window and instead locks herself in a closet. It was a good idea, at least, I think. Not that Michael... Uh, knew that it was a trick because he figures it out in about two seconds. <laughs> well, it bought her two seconds of life, that precious two seconds. Uh, the closet scene for me, though, is about the scariest moment. I mean, maybe I'm it's just I'm a little claustrophobic, but her in the closet with him punching through the slats of it, knocking that light on and just partially sticking through, trying to stab her, but he can't because it gets caught in a coat hanger. Uh, and while she's desperately trying to unravel a coat hanger, because it's the only thing she has at this point. And while his knife is stuck in the hangers, she stabs him in the eye yes. with a coat hanger yes. that's been unwrapped and then grabs his dropped knife and stabs him again in the chest because she's suddenly realizing one stab's just not going to do it anymore. He got blinded. He did get blinded. Yeah. Okay. I got, 
I got to say something about this scene right here. John Carpenter has for years said it's ridiculous that you talk about virginity and stuff. He's like, there is a sexual repression theme in my movie. And I've heard him talk about this in the in his interviews. But he's like, but everyone gets it wrong. The thing is, the most sexually repressed woman in the movie is the one that repeatedly stabs him with a phallic symbol. So he's like, I did that on purpose. She's the one that always keeps stabbing him. So he's like, that's intentional, but everyone just kind of misinterprets it. Hell yeah. Go Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So yeah, she stabs Michael. She knocks, he gets out of the closet and he collapses onto the ground. He, this guy goes down real easy towards the end of the movie. He just gets stabbed and repoke him. He goes immediately down to the ground. And this is where she goes out and tells the kids to run and get help, right? Yeah. Go down the street to the McKenzie's place. I'm surprised they didn't use the full name. Go down to Arthur Conan McKenzie's house. <laughs> yes. But this is important because the kids screaming out of the house are what alert Dr. Loomis, who is literally like two houses away. <laughs> yeah, at this point, and she's like, hmm, maybe I should look into this. <laughs> yes. He's a good doctor. Okay, so here we go. You know, again, I keep, I, hate, I keep saying iconic, but I love this moment where Jamie Lee has killed Michael, theoretically. The kids are safe. They've run away for help. She's slumped against the wall in the foreground. And John Carpenter, so good at using these background images where something's scary in the background, the person in the foreground doesn't see it. You see Michael Myers doing the greatest sit-up in the history of the world. He got abs, as Dr. Loomis would say. He does this great sit-up without any use of his hands at all, and then he turns his head and looks at her, and the minute he turns, the music starts right on the beat of his head turning. It's so cool. Yeah, and because you can't kill the boogeyman. <laughs> I couldn't have described it better myself. And, yeah, so Michael comes after her. He doesn't pick up the knife that was dropped on the floor because so, he's learning a few things from Lori, who's not his sister. <laughs> And he just starts to strangle her at the top of the stairs. I'm surprised he didn't miss the strangle and, like, grabbed her shoulder. Yeah. Well, he didn't strangle her well enough, even though he's demonstrated his superhuman strength, which allows Laurie just enough time to pull his mask off. And we don't see this monster. We just see this guy. I have a funny story about that. So they grabbed one of their buddies on set. Was it Tony Moran? Is that the guy's name? Oh, um. The one who played mo most of the shape or the one who played the face? Right here, when you see the face. I think you're right, but don't quote me on that. I know the rest of the shape was Nick Castle, though. Okay. Yeah, it's like their buddy, and they put him on the mask. So she pulls off the mask, and he's just like this slow, dim-witted-looking guy, nothing special. And John Carpenter, for years, would say, I'd have fans come up to me, and they'd say, oh, when you pulled off his mask, and he was all disfigured and horrifying, it was so scary. And Carpenter's like, that was just a regular dude. He wasn't disfigured. He's like it was just he was like it was amazing what people would project in their heads what they thought they saw. It's just a dude. There's nothing disfigured about him. There's no makeup or anything, but everyone thinks he was this monster like sloth from the Goonies. I think they misremember the, the you do see the stab to his eye. There's a little bit of that. Yeah. A, a tiny bit of blood. He's horribly disfigured by a tiny scratch. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's the important thing of Michael Myers. He is just this random person who snapped one day, you know, he looks like anybody on the street and that is the scary part about him. All right. And for all we talk about Lori being the hero and the stabbing him over and over with the phallic symbol, it is not her who ends up killing and stopping Michael Myers. Here comes the true hero of the movie lumbering up the stairs, probably half drunk. Who would that be, Matt? That would be Dr. Loomis who comes in at the last minute and, 
shouts, Michael! And then he shoots him. How many times does Dr. Loomis shoot Michael, Mario? I shot him six times! I shot him six times! Although, I swear if you watch Halloween 2 at the start, they do a flashback to part one, and there's seven gunshots. They screw up the flashback. That is correct, and all you had to do was just show the same damn footage, and they didn't do that. They added an extra gunshot. Even though they specifically have him shouting drunkenly throughout most of that movie how many times he shot him. Yes. So so Dr. Loomis comes up the stairs at the very last minute and gets all the credit for saving the day, even though Laurie has done everything heroic to slow him down and not get killed. Dr. Loomis shoots Michael six times. Michael goes spiraling off the balcony, goes falling down to his death. And that's the end of the movie. And this is where we get yet another iconic series of quotes. What do they say to each other? It was the boogeyman, wasn't it? As a matter of fact, it was. Oh, that was good. <laughs> but then, you know, once he chain, 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 takes his attention away from her, he looks back out the window, and of course, Michael is gone. He got spared. Yeah, and he, Michael is gone. Loomis has this look on his face of, well, this is going to keep going on as the Halloween theme kicks up again, and we go through all the locations that the movie has been to, and all you hear is Michael's breathing getting louder and louder and louder, and, and boom, end credits. Yeah, I gotta talk, I gotta mention that, that that's kind of a cliche ending, that the killer's dead, and they look down and the body's not there, but in Halloween's defense, and you can say this about almost any trope, it did that first. Yes. Like, so if other movies did that, you can't get, take Halloween, take the hit for that. And I have to say another thing that not only is Michael not being dead at the end scary, like a great ending, it's scarier because the way they present that very ending where you see every location in the movie and the breathing, you just hear Michael's breathing. And the implication could be he could be anywhere. He's anywhere. He could be in this theater. He could be outside. He could be waiting for you. You will never be rid of him. He could be anywhere. And the breathing gets heavier and heavier, and then it stops. And I think, personally, I think that's very effective. Very much so. Uh, you gave me the willies because I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> and also, to this movie's credit, I want to say, I don't think they were planning for sequels or anything. I just think they wanted to show that evil could not be destroyed. Evil would just keep going like Michael. Yeah. And that's again, the, the cynical way of looking at it as this movie, they don't kill Michael so they can bring him back for a sequel. But I, I agree with you. I, I've never heard John Carpenter say he intended to do a sequel. It's just scarier to have him not dead at the end. And just the, in black Christmas at the same way, he doesn't die in black Christmas either. It's just, it's scarier when the guy gets away at the end. And again, I, I always feel bad that Halloween takes so many hits for causing so many horror movie cliches. But again, they were doing this first. So I, I fully support that. And I, I the thing I was going to say about the ending here is that two things. Siskel and Ebert famously said this was one of the scariest movies they ever saw. And it's that ending where Michael's just breathing and you know he could be anywhere. Like, I think Roger Ebert said he went home and he was like he was unnerved at his house. He had to like look in his shower behind a shower curtain because this movie got under his skin like that. Totally. And the other thing I want to say is that if this were, I'm going to bash modern horror movies a little here. I know you're going to hate this. If this were a modern horror movie, it would have ended with the shot of all the locations of the movie and Michael breathing and it getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And then Michael's head would have popped up in the screen at the last second right before the credits. You're absolutely correct. I hate that, too, when they do that. No, you're absolutely right on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that's a big surprise, but... 
as much as I will defend modern horror, I will say it has a lot of bad habits, and that is definitively one of them. We do not need that one final jump scare. Just leave it scary. And I would say, again, a perfect last 20 minutes of a movie, I'll, I wouldn't say a perfect horror movie because it's got flaws, but it's so effective, and the stuff that's good about this movie is so good and so memorable that I just don't think most horror movies can even be I mean, classified in the same category. I think you know, they call The Wicker Man the Citizen Kane of horror movies. I would always call this one because it caused every other horror movie after 1978 to basically be some variant of Halloween, at least until, you know, maybe the 90s. But for a while, they're all just Halloween clones to some extent. And that's all John Carpenter, who took a movie about people walking around and just using tension and movie-making devices and shadows and the greatest music score ever made something out of nothing. Yeah, and again, to defend this movie, Mario and I have made a lot of fun of Halloween throughout the course of it. And a lot of that is just because we love it so much and have seen it so many times and could pick apart the smallest details of it. But what Mario said, I firmly agree with, that the last half hour plus, give or take, of this movie is just a masterclass in building tension and horror that – it should be required viewing for anyone who wants to make a horror movie. You can do it, your own thing with it from then on out, but that is just – it is a primer on the basics of tension building and how to frame a shot, how to make a bad guy menacing. It's, it, it's art. It's art we laugh at. It's art we make fun of, but it is art. And restraint. That's the other thing I think it's overlooked. Like how restrained a lot of this movie is where he's not just beating you over the head with violence and stabbies stabbies that's a great word and stabbing <laughs> but he's like he just draws it out you have to wait for it he's going to make you wait for the scary part which i think is scarier yeah it's one of the things i love about 70s horror is how much they're, they're willing to make you wait i found a lot of movies in more recent years have finally started to get back into that trend but it's it's slow going so i'm very happy to see uh that uh, i'm very happy to see that it is returning at least yeah and I would just say on a personal note, if you guys listen to my Wicker Man episode, you heard my daughter, Vanessa, big horror movie fan. She is not enamored of Halloween. And this, as a parent, this hurts me because I think this is the template of what every horror movie should be. Her argument is she doesn't like slasher movies. And I, it's funny, we've had this discussion many times. I'm like, I don't like slasher movies either, but this is Halloween. It's different. And she's like, no, it's not. It's a slasher. So... Again, we're in counseling over this. We will talk, dis debate this for years, but I'm, I'm de bound and determined to sell her on this being the greatest horror movie that influenced everything else after it. And this should not take the hit, like when she says, oh, it's so stupid, like, you know, the virgin girl gets saved. I'm like, but that's not a trope yet. And she's like, oh, the girl falls down. I'm like, but again, there are other movies just copied Halloween. Halloween did everything first, so I don't think it should take the hit for those. Yeah, honestly, I mean... It's an acquired taste, especially if you've gotten more used to things that have come since. It took me four or five times before my girlfriend and later wife was actually getting into it because if you've seen a lot of other stuff first, it can be a bit on the boring side. It can be a bit – I've seen all this somewhere, but give it its time. I think she'll come around on it too. It just it just takes a little bit of time to appreciate where it fits in the grand scheme of you know horror classics. Yeah, and I will always give this movie my highest compliment is that this is one of those movies I wish I could go back in a time machine and see in the theater on opening night with people who have never seen it before because I would kill to see the reaction of people on opening night who have no idea what's coming. Because, again, there would never been a movie quite like this, 
and it's so effective and it works so well in a live theater with live with a fresh audience and it just kills me that it came out when i was four so i never saw it for many years but this is one right at the top of the list there's a couple others i would say rocky 2 jaws there's a couple movies i would just have loved to see in the theater on opening night and this is right at the top of that list that one's definitely up there i mean i I would have just wanted to see the audience lose it during that sit-up. It sounds so silly to say in the abstract, but you watch that for the first time. I can just imagine the audience being, boom, like with a two-by-four to the chest. Yeah, so we have gone well over two hours, Matt. This is already the longest Staff Picks episode. I will have to edit it down, but... Is there anything else? I hate to say that because I hate to sign off. I never wanted this episode to end because this is the movie I've been dying to talk about for so long. Anything else you want to say about the legacy of Halloween, about how I'm an idiot about sequels? Any Donald Pleasance impersonation you haven't done yet? Anything else? I've done all that, and you are entitled to your opinion on sequels, even though I will firmly disagree with you on their right to exist. And it just cannot be stated enough that, yes, this movie did start a lot of bad trends. A lot of people did follow it and take the wrong lessons from it. But that is not Halloween's fault. Halloween was telling a tight, restrained, dare I say even classy little story of a serial killer and some babysitters and the doctor who's trying to save them all from the killer. It it, it is a small, simple very heartfelt, creepy as hell movie with a legacy that is often unearned, but the good parts of that legacy are just exquisite. Yeah, well said. And I'm, I'm again, I'm very happy you were able to come back on the show. And again, my first three-time Staff Picks co-host, I know politically I have just a unopened, or I've just unearthed Pandora's box because now all my two-time co-hosts are going to want to come on again. So politically I may have made a bad move here, but I was very happy having you back. And again, the next time uh, you come up with a good horror movie that you want to talk about, just let me know and we'll get you back on here. Oh, happy to do it. It has totally been a pleasure to do this for a third time and talking about just one of the greatest movies ever made. Anyway, again, thank you, as always, for listening to Staff Picks and for tuning in for Horror Month. I was very proud to present seven uh, horror movies that I think everyone should know and love to you. Maybe I'll do it again next October. I don't know, but now we'll be going back to our regular schedule of just jumping around all types of different genres. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until the next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll be looking for somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Pay attention and watch out for the boogeyman. Happy Halloween. Totally. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no conscience, no understanding and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face, and the blackest eyes the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up, because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Hey, isn't that Devon Graham?